720 WGN, it is Dane here with you high atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio. Tom, that music, that bumper music is the kind of music that Elvis's band would just play. You know, that kind of beat right before he would come out, like 10 more minutes, and then he would, they would bust into something and he'd come in in a jumpsuit and all that kind of stuff. We may talk to Elvis later today. We've got, uh, we're going to be reaching out to the other side as we reach out across not only 38 states in Canada with this signal, but across the world. We're going to be tapping into, uh, the United Kingdom. Frida Kelly, the, the longtime president of the Beatles fan club is going to be joining us. We're also going to be heading over to Portugal, one of the hot destinations there. Um, it'll be hot because it's going to be morning tomorrow when we talk with uh, Selena Tavera. She's the head of tourism for Portugal. She'll be calling in uh, live as well. And uh, we are also going to be talking uh, with some things that are going on here. The the conversation, the debate is raging. It is it is getting to be hot as well as far as kids going back to school. We'll have uh, Dr. Allison Tothian from the University of Chicago Emergency Medicine Pediatric Division talking about some of the things that everybody's thinking about where you, you talk about safety during the summer for kids and now you're thinking the most dangerous place could be schools, but we'll talk about that um, later on as well. Excited to have this guy on. And this is something, there's going to be so many you know topics uh, that are going on that are your headlines in the news. But I think everybody has more of a close relationship with tech than they ever did before because of the way that we stay connected, uh, whether it's with Zoom or remote learning or remote working or all the kind of things on the security side we're seeing, as well as some of those headlines in the international relations on the line with editor-at-large at CNET.com, the one only Ian Sure, Ian, welcome to WGN. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I, I am doing okay, and I, I'm I am excited to have you on for a couple different reasons. So, uh, TikTok is one of those things that is in the news, and so a lot of parents are either you know, they're certainly aware of it, and it hasn't been necessarily something that they voluntarily became aware of. It was almost <laughs> it just kind of just happened. You know, the eight year old's yeah. just gyrating and making different moves. She's got the camera set up in the produce department of the store, and you say, "What are you doing?" And they're doing all these these videos, and so it is one of the hottest things out there and and it has kind of been part of that long-standing debate that i've had as the kids download things from all over the place and i explained to them that no one is creating games for you just for your entertainment there's always something else either they're going to sell you a power up or some other kind of thing down the road or maybe it's a secret way for for china to steal all of our defense secrets who knows but uh but ian talk a little bit about tiktok for the listeners that may not be aware what is it and why is it such a big story right now yeah, so we'll start by telling you the secret trick to looking cool in front of every teenager you know is to say renegade, and they will all be surprised you know what you're saying. But what it is is a popular dance that has gone around TikTok, and that is one of the interesting things about this app is that it is one of these uh, social media apps that, uh, just like Instagram, has a specific twist to it. You know, Instagram's about photos as opposed to Facebook, which is about articles and, and, and posting, te- you know, all sorts of stuff, right, and getting into conversations, arguments, whatever. Instagram's more about just photos, right? Well, TikTok is about short videos, not like YouTube, really short, like 15 seconds. And what happens is that people use these to create small skits 
or often dance videos. That's what's really become popular. The high, the most followed TikToker in the world, yes, that's a term for people who use TikTok, is a uh, 16-year-old girl who started doing dance videos uh, on uh, just last year. So what's interesting, though, is that this app, unlike a lot of other social media apps, is based from a company in China called ByteDance. And this has caused the United States government to go uh, really crazy and worried about what the implications are that over 100 million people now have downloaded this app. They're using it every day or more. And what they are concerned about is that they don't know what information is being sent back to China. And, of course, we are right now locked in a very interesting Cold War of sorts with the Chinese government. And this has kind of raised the concern even further to a point where the Pentagon, uh, the Congress, a number of private companies have all told their employees to remove TikTok from their phones, uh, which just has made us all think, well, gosh, how far is this going to go? It's the kind of thing. It is the most hilarious. And I I mean, I know it's a serious thing and it's serious business. And if you talk to the kids, it, they're serious about it. But the kind of the most ridiculous thing that could ever be inter kind of like uh, just inserted into, you know, a national uh, dilemma, you know, or the Cold War, or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, with the TikTok situation, here's the things that are that are kind of scary. So for the kids, the the thought that maybe the president could ban it or that it wouldn't exist anymore is terrifying for them because they absolutely love it. If I was if I was that certain you know kind of brand of celebrity, because they'll say to me, "Hey, do you know so and so?" Of course I don't. Like, well, they're the biggest star in the world and they're on TikTok. If someone took away my newfound you know mode of uh, of celebrity, I would be upset about that. As well. So so talk about kind of how it works. We know whenever we download anything, you know, on at least, you know, on an app on a phone, there's all sorts of different kind of allowances and permissions that we give. And we assume I don't think we assume that part of us assumes that maybe it's for the purpose of just doing the thing. And part of it, I always feel like oh, I'm giving up too much. You know, I hope this doesn't come back to bite me. But how, yeah. how does it all work with TikTok where people are so concerned? Yeah. So first off, I think you bring up a really interesting point about how kids find their celebrities on these apps and we don't understand. I always try to liken it to being told that the Beatles are actually secret spies trying to recruit you into some nasty scheme that a government you don't like is doing, or maybe, you know, think back to during the McCarthy days, right, and suddenly your favorite actor is said to be a communist spy. It's that kind of level of, of, of experience for a lot of people who've been using this app daily, nonstop, and love the people on it. But instead of it being the individual creators, it's actually the app themselves that the people are worried about. So this app, just like all apps, asks you to give access to your photos and to your videos and to be able to control the microphone and video camera so that they can record whatever you want to do. And what's concerning to the security uh, establishment in the, in the United States is that the, there's the possibility, although there is no proof of it, that this app is also worming its way into other parts of the phone and trying to collect information. So, for example, an app, an app can ask your phone for access to your calendar. You have to give it permission, but a lot of people just randomly give permission to everything. Same thing to contacts, right? If the, you suddenly uploaded all of your contacts, my address book, I'm sure a lot of people would like to have access to because there's potentially some important stuff in there, right? So, it's those kind of things that are really worrisome to the security establishment. And I think it's going to be very interesting 
interesting. You know, part of what's happened now is that President Trump has threatened to ban the app, and regardless of whether there's legal precedent for him to be able to do that, the larger question becomes, okay, well, maybe someone can buy it from the United States to stop this concern and basically take over all of the information to make sure it's not in China. So that's why we hear Microsoft is is saying that they might be willing to buy it, partially because they're not Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. They're not in the middle of a huge antitrust hearing in the right. in Capitol Hill, so they are a likely people. There has been rumors, although Apple says it's not true, that they were interested in it. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this ends up playing out, because it's supposedly President Trump says that by September 15th, if TikTok is not owned by someone in the United States, it is going to be banned. Well, and then we've got the idea that he is trying to like insert himself in the Treasury to be part of the deal or cut into the deal or profit from the deal. We're going to talk about all of that. We're going to get more into the TikTok with Ian Share when we come back uh, from this break. So keep it here. It's staying on 720 WGN. Nice. 720 WGN, Tom Hush in the booth, spinning the hits, and of course, everyone wants to rule the world, at least, uh, well, the kids do, you know, with TikTok, and China may want to, we're not sure, they won't admit it, on the line with us, he's going to help us uh, demystify the world of TikTok, and help us understand not only our kids, but the apps and programs that are, well, controlling them, Ian Shear from CNET uh, joins us, Ian, back, uh, welcome back. Hi. So one of the things that, that I thought of, and I don't know, this is just a crazy thought, because we're always complaining, or at least that's one of the main things out there, is that China doesn't uh, recognize or consider intellectual property. And instead of trying to spend, and you know, President Trump was talking about, hey, it's, it's a real hot brand right now, and it's going to be expensive. We're looking into the billions as far as the value. Is, is there the possibility, and maybe this is crazy, because we typically, at least in the business world and maybe in other areas, try to take the high road, could we just decide, like, hey, we'll just we'll ban the Chinese version, we'll just start it up and just do it ourselves, call it TikTok, isn't that what China would do? Well, you could make that argument, but part of the problem for any social media app, or really any app at all, is that getting people on board is tough. Uh, what has made Instagram stand out, for example, is not that it had a photo app or even that it was the first to offer the features it has. In fact, I don't think it's offered many features that are new from it. Most of those features came from other apps. What made Instagram successful was that it was there at the right time with the right people and the right kind of marketing oomph to get successful. And it had a lot of competitors when it came out. It was one of the last really big photo sharing apps that came out, and somehow it became absolutely huge. Uh, So the thing is that we could try to rebuild TikTok or even create something here and call it TikTok or uh, TikTok or whatever you want to call it, but uh, the reality is that it's likely going to be very hard to collect all those people onto the new app, and that is part of why um, when Facebook or Google or whomever buys a company that's a social media company, they pay obscene amounts of money, right? WhatsApp was bought for billions of dollars because it had collected so many people to use it on a regular basis, and that is incredibly hard to do. So they look at marketing to those people, and those people are potential customers for other things, on the advertising, kind of all the things that that you would do with it. When it comes to 
to TikTok and in some of the apps, you know, you wonder where where that value comes. And at first, when it said, "Okay, well, we're going to buy it," I'm like, "Well, that sounds like a cool solution." But then when I heard, you know, the Chinese government say that this is, you know, that it's a takeover and some of that other stuff, it looks as though this is sort of along the lines of, you know, we're going to make you an offer you can't refuse. It sounds like a lot of money, but is are, is TikTok is the Chinese whoever would have to agree to sell it? Are they on board with this, or are they just kind of getting told, "Well, you can sell it to us, or or we're going to shut it down." to tell how they feel. Uh, you know, right now we're in the middle of very contentious negotiations. They're happening in public, and that's something that's very unusual. Usually these kind of negotiations happen behind closed doors and very secretive, very important non-disclosure agreements, and we don't find out about it until the very last stages. In this case, we're kind of watching all the drama play out in real life, and the result is that, look, you know, I think that there's an argument to be made that the company that owns TikTok talk bike dance feels kind of uh, treated poorly because, you know, they are not the Chinese government, right? And, and if you look at it from their point of view, whether or not you believe them, they're a private company that just happens to be Chinese. And here the United States government is saying, well, you're Chinese, so clearly you must be responsible for the Chinese government and everything they do, and we want to hold you to account for that. And they kind of sit there thinking, well, you wouldn't like it if we did that to you, right? So, um, you know, they have a hard time with this. And we've seen the CEO uh, even put out statements saying that he feels like he's being put upon and being treated poorly. Um, but that also may all be a negotiating tactic, right, to try and get more money out of Microsoft or whomever else ends up buying it, or even getting the president to back off some of his uh, more blustery threats. So we'll see well, how this all ends up playing out. It's possible that everything could just kind of fall apart. It's possible that the ban will happen, uh, how, although I honestly think it's unlikely, uh, just because this app is so large. And at the end of the day, there are a lot of people who vote for the president who have kids using TikTok, it would be very unhappy. So I imagine that at one point this is going to end up playing out in a in a kind of positive way. But it's going to be very interesting to watch as it does. It seems as though they're kind of stuck in the middle. And I think one of the things that's real concerning is, I guess, this either rule slash law that, you know, the, if the Chinese government demands information from a company, they're, the company that's an indigenous company to China is obligated to give it to them. Has there ever been? We've seen it in individuals that have... Um, you know, asked for asylum or escaped from communist countries. Has it ever happened to a company? Is is that maybe a thought to offer asylum to the owners? It said it's a private company, uh, if that's even possible in a communist state. But if so, the owner of TikTok, whoever created it, to like bring them along, he doesn't have to sell it. He could bring himself and his company, and we could offer him asylum here in the United States to run the the company from here. Yeah, I think there's. Uh, a, a ton of ideas out there for how to deal with this. You also have to think that maybe, uh, you know, TikTok is incredibly large in China, right? I don't know how many people... Uh-huh per different geographic location are actually using it. We know that, for example, India was one of, uh, was one of TikTok's largest, fastest-growing uh, groups of people before the Indian country and the Chinese government got into a squabble and ended up having some, uh, some military 
stuff happened between them, and suddenly the Indian government, uh, to respond, shut down TikTok, right, as a way to punish the Chinese government. So, you know, I think that there's a very interesting kind of thing going on, and I think the larger question would be, you know, if it, we need to figure out whether or not we can deal with the possibility of someone who's not American running a large website. And that's what this comes down to, is that we have lived in a world where the Internet is basically run by Western countries. And now we are dealing with the real possibility that large you know, non-Western countries are starting to become very popular. They're building apps that are at the quality that we expect here, and they're able to jump the pond, as it were, and actually become popular here. And that is something we have to wrestle with, because it's not going to end with TikTok. There's going to be other apps that become popular from China or from other countries that we don't like, and we need to figure out how we're going to deal with that, because we can't just go around banning every app. At one point, people are going to say that's not the American way, and there's going to be a huge argument about it, and I think we need to deal with it now versus waiting down the road. It's crazy, yeah, the way that the future is working. It's kind of the ebb and flow of all that reactionary on trying to control it. If you if you can, just finding a way to work with all this new technology that we actually kind of know whether we need it or not. We love it. We love it. So uh, let the listeners know we're talking with Ian Chair. He is editor-at-large at CNET, CNET.com. We come back from one app that's brand new and very cool to one that maybe hanging on Twitter. We'll talk about that, plus so many other cool stories. Keep it here. It's Dane on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN Dane here with you until four AM in for Nick DeGilio and on the line. Uh, excited to have editor at large at CNET.com, the one Ian Shear. And, and Ian, when we when we last left you, we were talking a little bit about some of these apps that people have, not only for, for networking, for communication, for fun, for all of those kind of things. And, you know, we look at some of the, whether it's the app themselves that's doing it, and I know Twitter is un, under some kind of investigation, and also the, the hacking side of it, right, is that people are, you know, you'll see something from a friend of yours where, I guess either they're asking you for money or talking about that they're working from home or maybe some naughty pictures that you wouldn't normally expect from them. But there's a lot of things going on with Twitter these days. Uh, we got to talk about what your friends are sending you. Well, uh, you know, well, they, look, they I think that, that what, well, they say they've been <laughs> what's hacked, interesting you know. about Twitter is that, you know, you may have heard about, what was it, two weeks ago now? There was a huge hack that happened where the most high-profile accounts that were on there, including Barack Obama. We had the account for uh, Joe Biden, right, the presumptive nominee for president of the United States to go up against Donald Trump, Elon Musk, uh, Bill Gates, a bunch of them were suddenly taken over. And what they posted were this cryptocurrency scam, right, basically convincing people to send them Bitcoin. And the way they did it is they said, you know, you'll get $1,000 back if you send me $1,000, or you'll get $2,000 back. They'll double whatever you send them. And it, apparently up to $115,000 worth of Bitcoin were sent to this address during what was under an hour of this hack. And 
what it raised is a lot of questions about how we can trust Twitter, whether or not we can trust the, you know, the blue check marks that are on all these accounts, which Twitter says that means that they're verified and the tweets are coming from them, and also whether we can trust even its security settings, because it turns out these hackers got around Twitter's security settings. And so one of the things we've learned from their investigation, we've written about this on CNET, is that the way the hackers got in was actually by duping Twitter's own security staff into letting them have access uh, purely through, and this is part of one of my favorite things that security experts tell me, the the weakest part of your security is the person between the chair and the keyboard. (laughs) It is is what I choose to do when I'm, I'm ever clicking on something that is the biggest security risk. And sure enough, that is what happened at Twitter. Despite every bit of the security protocols they had, someone clicked on the wrong link or something else and gave these hackers access. And that is what caused this huge mess. So it was a good reminder for all of us to remember, you cannot click on these links that you get an email if you don't know what they are. So So we have a good list of recommendations on CNET for what to look out for in case you're worried about this kind of thing, like making sure that the email came from the right email address, oftentimes they fake it. Like, you know, if I my email is at cnet.com, instead they could spell it with two T's or something like that. And a lot of people, they're just glancing over it. They don't think about it, right? Or if it's poorly spelled or if it suddenly seems like it's hugely an emergency and you weren't expecting it, like call the person up to see what's going on. It's those kind of things, those basic things that slow down the process that will really slow down the hackers. But the reason they do all this is because it works. I mean, we saw it. No, okay, but that's a very ambitious thing. So instead of trying to use some sort of algorithm or program in order to kind of replicate or or hack into whatever the person's password may be, so you're saying, so so did someone come up, get a hold of the, the folks at Twitter on the security side and say, hi, this, this is Barack Obama, I can't seem to get in, can you reset my password? Was it that? It wasn't exactly that. That would be funny, though. Um, No, in fact, I mean, you'd have to really sound like him to make it work, right? But, you know, the thing is that actually in this case, what they did is that they convinced someone that they needed access to Twitter's behind-the-scenes security settings. So it wasn't particularly Barack Obama's account, but rather this the software that Twitter created that allows them to control Twitter. So what happened was that once this person got access, it was actually three people apparently, got access to this tool, they were then able to take over other accounts and basically ignore all the security settings that had been put on various accounts to be able to put these cryptocurrency things and tweet whatever they wanted, really. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really concerning. Now, Twitter, in response, has said that there they're going to limit the number of people who have access to this thing. Sure, of course, whatever, okay. But it, lar- it raises larger questions because the reality is that, you know, Twitter, like every other company, has human beings working in it, and this is where the failure was. It wasn't a failure of security. It wasn't a failure of, of technology. It was a failure of a human being. Wow. And those are very hard to beat. Yeah. it's, it's gonna. I mean, it's tough, right, because that's what it is, and that's like the oldest – 
uh, trick in the book. It's one thing to have people from the outside breaking into Twitter to use it for nefarious purposes. It's another thing for Twitter in and of itself as part of, I guess, the business model to do things that people either call into question or investigate. And so, and that's one of the things with all of these different platforms, whether it's Facebook or, and a lot of the social media is that you give the information and then, and I think we understand that they're going to be, you know, as sort of that trade off for the information or the connectivity is that we're going to be, you know, they're going to market to us or they're going to take some of our information share it they'll say you know so we can find things that you like and show those to you but the ftc it said um is now got twitter under investigation for for the misuse are we getting something that we're going to have to or at least we can apply to all kind of levels of social media uh you would wish so that is separate from the bitcoin thing by the way but twitter told us uh a couple of days ago that they, in a regulatory filing, that it turns out that uh, they are under investigation by the Federal Trade Commission because we had given them our phone numbers, uh, a lot of us, and our emails um, so that we could have extra security settings. For example, when I gave them my phone number, that's so that they could send me a text message for what's called dual-factor authentication, right, which is a, a really nifty technology that everyone, by the way, should be using. Uh, oftentimes your bank requires it, but you can do it on Gmail, you can do it on Facebook, you can do it on anything practically. And what it does is that you enter in your password and your username, and then it sends you a code that works for like 60 seconds to your text message or to an app. And then you enter that in and you're able to get in. And that way they're able to kind of prove that you're you, right? I mean, someone would have to take control of your phone, which is something hackers sometimes do, or they would have to be able to hold your phone to be able to enter in this code. And so this is something that we suspect that we, when we give it over to Twitter, we said, hey, this is something we're trusting you with because you're saying you're doing it in the name of security. Well, it turns out Twitter turned around and between 2013 and 2019 used it for advertising, which is a big, big, big no-no, right? They never told us that they were going to do that. And that is where the FTC has been coming down on a lot of these companies, Google, Facebook, YouTube, uh, and Twitter, is that they have to at least be upfront with us about how they're using our information. And oftentimes they hide it in those terms of service that nobody reads and they just click OK. But even in this case, Twitter didn't do that. So they really screwed up here. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if it changes anything broadly. But, you know, I think the best thing that could come out of anything is forcing these companies to continuously remind us what they're doing with our information. That's something that Google. Uh, has not been doing, but people like Apple and Microsoft have because their models, their business models don't rely on advertising, right? They, they make money by selling us actual devices. And so as a result, they're able to take this very extreme position where they'll say, oh, well, we're going to tell you every time we use your information. We're going to be very upfront with you. And that's because they don't have to worry about that being turned off and them losing money. But it's, it's caused a real rift within the tech industry about how to handle user privacy and what is the right way to approach this stuff so that we all feel good about it. Let the listeners know we're talking with Ian Cherry. He's the editor-at-large at CNET.com. And when it comes to this, I think we... At least I feel like we all sort of understand, even if it's not necessarily something that they're really super transparent with, that this is that this is happening. Are they going to just be more transparent and say, yeah, just like you thought, that's what we're going to be doing. And if you don't want to have Facebook, right, which is just like some essential thing we have to have, or if you don't want to have some of these really cool apps, I guess you can get out of it. Otherwise, this is just the way that the world works to where people are just going to accept it once they know that this is you know what's happening. Unfortunately, this is the way the world works, even if you don't want it. Uh, the reality we've learned 
from Google and Facebook in particular is that they actually track all of the traffic on the Internet that they can, not just the people who use Facebook. And they say they do that for security reasons, to make sure that they know, you know, they're able to track the hackers as best as they can and identify bad behavior and all that. But the end result is that if you are a proud non-Facebook user, and I, I salute you as someone who's been able to stay out of the curve, um, those people are still being tracked by Facebook, whether you like it or not. So it's going to be, you know, there's a larger conversation that is, is going to happen at some point, and we've written about it on CNET before. Uh, you know, Congress, if they ever get their act together, which that alone is a joke, uh, if they ever do that, then we may actually see a conversation started about how these companies handle our information and how honest they are with us about it and really offering us a way out of it. And right now, there is no law that even gets close to forcing that anywhere in the world, but it could start to happen. Well, as, as some of the things on the tech side become more kind of ingrained and embedded in, in our way of life and become almost essential, I mean, you're just seeing sort of this dependence and reliance on, on things or just an acceptance of things that are different. I was at uh, the, the liquor store the other, you know, our local kind of, I don't know what it was, you know, normal chain place, you know, picking up something. And the guy in front of me had asked, and I've never heard anyone ask that at, in that venue before, said, hey, can I pay with Apple Pay? And the guy behind the counter said, yeah, sure, that's fine. And so as we look for some of these other kind of payments and, and other kind of modes of payments that are becoming not only um, just available, but also acceptable. I remember when it was a big deal when someone wanted to try to use a Discover card and it was like, <laughs> oh, that's crazy. And now you have so many different things. What are your thoughts? What is the future of whether it's online payment or whether it's different kind of forms of payment? I think in the name of security, people are open to this. What's going on? Yeah, so we have actually a really great video on CNET where we interviewed uh, Visa, uh, one of their executives, about this. And obviously Visa has something to benefit from saying this stuff. But one of the things that's happened with the coronavirus is that it has forced a lot of people to rethink the way that they handle all sorts of stuff in our daily lives. And we all know already that money is one of the most dirty things we have in our lives, right? Like, it has touched all of our hands. It's never cleaned. Uh, you know, no one would lick a penny ever. But, you know, it's those types of things that now we're starting to rethink, well, wait a minute, do I really want to have this thing in my pocket or near me that, you know, could be carrying something I didn't really think about before? And it's caused a number of companies and also like farmers and whatnot, to actually start taking on using contactless payments, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, anything pay. And it's a, it's a really interesting move. Uh, oddly enough, it's actually more secure than using a credit card, which is my favorite point about all this stuff. They actually, when you use Apple Pay or Google Pay or whatever pay, what it does is it actually creates a unique and special code that is only available for that transaction. So imagine creating a credit card number only to pay for that one thing, and then it's no longer usable. And if someone tries to intercept it or use it again, it doesn't work. And that is why it's so successful, is that it, it's, it's nearly, not, nothing is perfect, but it is so much actually more rock solid than your normal credit card. And, um, and so as a result, you know, we're starting to see this boom in contactless payments. And I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how things move forward, right? We already have it on our watches. There's talks about installing it into our cars so that we don't even have to pay at the gas station. We just kind of drive up, put the gas in, drive off, it automatically pays. I mean, there's all sorts of really nifty ideas out there. And I have a feeling that it's going to, 
you know, the coronavirus is, you know, for all the terrible things it's done to us, it will really cause us to, to embrace technology in a new way because we're all so fearful about what it'll mean uh, if we don't. On the tech side, the, the, the virus has, in no pun intended, kind of putting a lot of the educational parts of a lot of these things into warp speed, right, where we've had to have kind of learn things and kind of figure it out and have it available because of, uh, you know, having to be sort of remote and distance and all that. We're going to take a break and we come back. We'll talk a little bit more with this, but then we're going to get into some of the entertainment side, too. And as people are enjoying the ability to order things and have them delivered or working from home or school from home, the movie industry is one of those that has been hit harder than uh, than almost any. And they've always, you know, got to try to figure a workaround, right, to get people. People still like to watch stuff, but the idea of a theater, it's almost like a cruise ship, you know, with popcorn. So we're going to take a break and we come back uh, more with Ian Sherrod Stain here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It is uh, Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline Studio, and uh, on the line with us, uh, continuing our conversation with Ian Sherry, is the editor at large at CNET dot uh, com, and on the on the entertainment side, tech has uh, has kind of taken over in that as so many people you know have kind of foregone our typical whether it's cable or even satellite right that it's futuristic and streaming services are the norm now and and uh, people are really kind of liking as they sort of come into their own on the quality side and more people are are, are doing that the our traditional and you know i think you know one of our favorite things is going as a family to the movies and it is one of those things that the movie theater experience has really upped its game over the years and you know with the dream loungers and the extra food and the cocktails and all that kind of stuff and now with the pandemic it is really thrown a wrench into that side of it people still want to watch and enjoy what's on the screen but the actual going there experience that is all about and really the business model of the theaters is kind of gone so ian what are what are your thoughts i know one of the the notes that you gave us is our theaters dead i sure hope not but i just don't see a way to bring them back yeah it's a large question i mean i personally not speaking for cnet but just myself i'm terrified of the idea of going to a theater and i don't know when i'll be ready to go to one i mean there's there's a lot of talk about how the the kind of psychological damage we've all gone through over the last six months uh, will have lasting effects, particularly when it comes to stuff like this or going to a sports stadium or places where we we now know that we are in extreme danger. And even when things get better, we may not feel comfortable. And I think that for movie theaters in particular, who are being really hard hit now, uh, and their business models, particularly to revolve around the idea of me going there. Uh, you know, they can't rebroadcast somewhere else like the sports people can. Um, what's happening is that they are now going up against companies like Disney and Universal, and all these companies are saying, well, we need to make our bucks, too. We can't just wait until the coronavirus goes away, and Ian maybe one day feels better about going into a theater, and instead they're starting to put out movies online. So the, the biggest example so far we've had is this movie Mulan, which is a it's a live action remake of the popular film cartoon from the nineties and it's gonna be a really fascinating thing. Disney announced today that they're going to release it on September fourth 
for Disney Plus subscribers. So you have to be a subscriber to Disney's streaming service. And on top of that, you have to give them $30 on top. So you're Whoa. paying as much as $40 plus to have access to this thing. But as a result, you will be able to watch this movie that otherwise was going to only be released in the theaters. And it will, by the way, be coming to international markets, including Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and a couple of countries in Western Europe. Uh, and it will be released in some theaters where those places have been opened, although I'm curious how many ticket sales they'll actually have. But it, larges, it raises this larger question about, you know, maybe the future needs to be reconsidered in the business model of not just the theaters, but movie people in general need to be reconsidered too. I, and we heard Disney lost a ton of money in the last three months. I mean, we're talking billions of dollars, and they can't just continue to wait until this thing gets better. Yeah, every, everything about Disney and one of the more profitable, successful, enviable companies out there does everything first class. You know, you've got theme parks that, you know, people don't really feel comfortable going to or maybe you can't even go to. Uh, you know, you've got lots of millions of people walking around shoulder to shoulder, waiting on rides and breathing each other's air and all that. And then you've got the the entertainment products, which are, you know, based in, in the theater thing. So the Disney Plus has been great. $6, that's that's a real bargain. And it's been a, a super value that has been built in. A lot of people are in on that and we enjoy it as a family as well, the $30, and they'll say, of course, it's for the whole household, right? You know, if it's just you, it's 30 bucks, or if you've got like 20 people in the house, it's $30 too. But you're still dependent on what kind of system you have in order to fully experience and enjoy it. And I just, I just don't know. I'm, I'm with you in the way that, you know, everything about the theater experience is you sort of losing yourself in it and being able to kind of immerse yourself in the theater experience, whether it's the, the seats or the sounds or the visuals. And if the back of your mind is, hey, that person, you know, two seats over is really breathing heavy in there, you know, then I think it just kind of ruins the whole experience. It's really, really sad. Other than maybe giving people hurt locker suits at the door or maybe compartmentalizing, <laughs> right, where you have your own sort of box seat or maybe an old theater-style yeah. box. And just think about what that, you know, that would be a huge financial investment and a gamble, too, if it would even catch on. I, I just don't know what to say. Yeah, I, I'm really curious to see where the future goes. And by the way, you know, there's there's a larger conversation happening in the tech industry before all this happened where there was talk about how virtual reality, right, the, these headsets that put a screen so close to your eyes that your brain's tricked into thinking you're in another place uh, created by a computer program, that type of technology actually the most popular thing people do in it, believe it or not, watching movies. Because you can simulate like an 80-foot screen in a VR headset and you can create 3D audio with special headphones, and people have been loving it. So there was a while, it's not today, but it was at the beginning of this stuff back when it was coming out in 2016 and whatnot, there was a real conversation about, well, wait a minute, maybe VR is going to kill off all of the theaters. And it may end up being one of the things that helps the movie industry remain being the movie industry, but it doesn't answer what's going to happen to AMC and Lowe's and all these other theater chains that, you know, have, have built their businesses off of selling me popcorn when I'm sitting in a chair. Oh, I was just thinking about that. you got to have a delivery truck that comes out. Amazon can deliver popcorn as you order it outside <laughs> with the button. Because yeah, the movie theater, we haven't cracked the code on making that popcorn. Man, so... E- e- 
No, you can't make it at home yet. It, people try, but I, I and I've bought some of them. They aren't the same. <laughs> it's not the same. So you still have that. It's man. We're going to have to see how all of this all of this goes. We appreciate you jumping on and sharing a lot of these topics for listeners that want to continue the conversation with you and all those other things that you have up at CNET and social media for you, Ian. Where can they go? always obviously cnet.com easy to spell c-n-e-t and then also i'm on social media pretty much any platform under my name i-a-n-s-h-e-r-r and you can just always tweet at me or whatever else happy or good or bad or whatever and i'll try to respond if i have the time ian share is there for you thanks so much for jumping on the show tonight ian have a great rest of your night Absolutely. Take care. All right. Wow. So that was great. You know, he shared some of the things, a little bit, a peek into the future on the tech side. And when we come back uh, from the news, we're going to peek into the future. Maybe Joyce Keller will have some insights into the theater business. Certainly she'll have a a glimpse into the other side in a bunch of different ways. So stay tuned uh, for that. And a little bit later on, we want to let the listeners know to stay tuned. We're going to be talking direct with Portugal when we can travel over there. We're going to be kind of seeing what's going on. And Frida Kelly, excited for this. She is uh, the long time president of the Beatles fan club. She's going to be joining us uh, as well. Quick break and uh, and we'll have more. It's Dane here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you. Hi atop Chicago Skyline Studio. And uh, excited to have on the line with us, and excited for the listeners, honored to have right the, uh, you know, one of uh, the top one hundred psychics in America, who's who in America, who's who in the world, who's who in television, the author of ten books, including Simon Schuster's Seven Steps to Heaven: How to Communicate with Those We've Loved and Lost, internationally respected intuitive counselor, healer, lecturer, and hypnotist, the one and only Joyce Keller. Joyce, welcome to WGN. Jane, I, I can't tell you. Excuse me, how happy I am to be with you. I love Chicago. I love your station. I love everything you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. The last time I was in Chicago was, I think, to do the Oprah Winfrey show. So, (laughs) is she still there? No, no. She's she's moved to, um, she's in California now. She's doing a a bunch of different things and kind of expanded her reach in, in a bunch of different ways. But we're definitely getting off on the right foot with all of the love, and I think we need more of that. Um, in this day and age and, and Joyce, you know, all the ways that you've connected with, uh, fans and readers and viewers and listeners and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that I think is always universally fascinating is, is sort of the, the kind of origin story to it. And it goes a bunch of different ways. There's some people with your kind of in, in the area of your kind of gifts that say, Hey, I always knew, or this is the way I felt, or maybe it's an event that sort of triggers at least the awareness for it. So for the listeners and for Joyce Keller, like how did it all happen for you to start down this journey? Well, there are two ways it can happen to any of us, Dane. It happens that I probably was born into it because my mother was a great psychic and medium. And it seemed very normal and natural for me. My brother and sister were not that interested. It kind of went the other way. But my mother latched on to me, and I thought it was terrific. <laughs> she would say, let's analyze our dreams and let's talk about numbers. <laughs> and she was very involved with all of the above. And she said, we can do everything except card reading. But that's, she's a good old Methodist gal. So she said, cards are not good. So I never learned to read cards. I, I don't know if I agree with her or not. I, I have friends who are great card readers. But I, 
I appreciate her talents, and she kind of led me into it. It seemed very natural and very normal. So at an early age, I was doing readings when I was three and four years old. So I've done this all my life, Dane. Is it the kind of thing, and you mentioned it, and they always say that one of the keys is to open yourself up to the possibility and sort of uh, let yourself go as far as, you know, inviting it in and 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 kind of just, you know, I guess... Yeah, I don't know what it is, but sort of just allowing it to sort of happen. And that's one of those first steps. And so if you had siblings that may not have been as open to it or as interested in it, maybe they had some talents or abilities that they sort of blocked where, again, you were just you were excited to kind of receive it and go from there. Right. I also think that people like to keep their inner selves to themselves. and They don't want to disclose to anyone who and what they are and they're kind of afraid but you know what the fact is there's nothing new under the sun and we all have i don't want to say a dark side but there are things that we don't want to reveal so people run the other way from psychics i think a lot of um relatives and friends are, are like that so if that's the case that's fine but you know what jane as the energy on the earth is shifting now it's not all bad it's <laughs> it's a good thing because we're being forced to raise our energy and allow the higher frequencies to come in and work with us. So what does that mean? It means that we don't have to be as connected to the mundane as we always have been. And by that, I mean a job. (laughs) You're fortunate that you're working. Most of the people I know have stopped working. They're unemployed, and we all know this. And it's as if the creator is saying to us, we have to stop and, and find out just where we're going as humanity. Do we want to continue along this path of working and coming home and watching television and having something to eat, and if we're lucky, having sex and then going to sleep and repeating the pattern over and over again, year after year? And there has to be something more. So that's what I feel this is about. Is it engineered? Probably. And by that, it's, you know, there's another whole way to take it. Uh, along that route. But the fact is that we need to connect with ourselves now, and that's what this is about. Is everyone psychic? Yes. Um, Even the people who are atheists or who don't believe in anything, when they cross over or they die, there's usually a message saying, oh, okay, (laughs) I had no idea, but here we are, you know, and there are dimensions and dimensions waiting to be explored. So this is a fascinating time and a fascinating world. So, you know, we're entering into a new time. Uh, do you feel that way also, Dane? Yeah, well, so, I think so, too. And we're going to talk a little bit about the connection with the other side. There's been so much of that, and we'll talk with that or about that a little bit later on in the conversation. But you're right, you know, Joyce, that they've got, you know, this is a time when people are getting that sort of fresh start. So much about our typical mundane kind of rat race has been shuffled up and changed. And we're sort of uh, kind of thrown into an opportunity to be able to say, well, everything's different. We can sort of build it back the way that we want. And I've read in some of the stuff that not only do you do the, you know, the, the communicating with the other side, but you also are, are doing, you're a visionary in a bunch of different ways and, and self-help and getting people to be able to kind of break some of those norms as well. So when people are in sort of this habit of this is what we do and this is what we don't do, 
Um, when they know that there's things about either their life that is either not constructive or destructive or not allowing them to live and be their best selves. You, you mentioned on one of the sheets that I saw, as far as like weight loss or getting healthy, there's a lot of people, even though they say a lot of people are drinking more, maybe having more wine, a lot of people are getting healthy. <laughs> okay. Now we're going to inject something of, of my belief system. Uh, and the fact is that if you are escaping this whole, what should be an opportunity for growth, and you're escaping into alcohol and drugs, it's counterproductive. And there's a shifting now of dimensions, which I know you all know about. It. The third dimension is where we have been. And the higher forces or energies or God, or call it what you will, are forcing us to raise our consciousness away from escaping into drugs and alcohol and away from a lot of the problems on the earth that need to be revealed. Slowly but surely, all of that is happening. So we have a tremendous new door opening. So you have a choice. Do you wish to go through that door, which, you know, who knows what's on the other side, like the Wizard of Oz, you know, like, what's really on the other side? <laughs> right. You know, but you have a choice of uh, staying in the mundane and fighting and struggling or moving ahead. Now, a lot of people own restaurants, as an example, and they're in terrible trouble. But they're using their ingenuity, and they're starting to deliver more. They're, they're branching out. They're becoming more holistic, whatever it takes. You know, so this is a time that we need to be grateful and express our gratitude in service to one another and to see what the world is really needing. There are only two paths of development at this time. You could choose the path of fear and go backwards and say, you know, boo-hoo, I, you know, I want my job back. You know, that's probably not going to happen. And it all happens so suddenly because, oh, by the way, the other path is love, which is the most important yeah. and the highest. But this all happened very suddenly because we were so slow and the earth was so resistant to change. So it's, it's like it just came slamming down. When I say it, I mean the virus or the ancillary problems that came with it seem to come like around March 1st, but actually goes beyond. And before that, it goes to like January. In some cases, people say it, it, was, it was years in coming. So the obvious question is, well, how long is the virus going to last? Is that, is that what you're thinking? <laughs> well, no, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily thinking that, you know, and of course, there's been so many challenges and pain and it's an apocalyptic pandemic and we all get that. And as we look for some silver linings and some ways to come out of that with some is to, to with some kind of improvements, right, to really kind of maybe either change your focus or use this as an opportunity to change your life path. And some like you had said, too, and we've seen it all over the place where the path has been sort of pulled out from under you. We're going to take a quick break and we come back. We're going to be back with uh, acclaimed psychic medium Joyce Keller. We're going to talk about being brave, making some of those changes and sometimes it's as easy as making the decision and when you've got a little bit of inspiration from Joyce Keller, maybe it'll be something that you can do. So a quick break we'll be back at staying here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you until four a.m. In for Nick D. and uh, on the line with us. Excited uh, to continue our conversation with uh, one of 
the top 100 psychics in America, who's who in America, who's who in the world, who's who in television, acclaimed psychic medium and author Joyce Keller. Joyce, welcome back. Oh, thank you, Dane. Dane, I have to tell you, you know, when I do a radio show or any kind of a show, I never know quite what the host is going to do to me or with me. <laughs> but you, <laughs> it's, it's always a surprise. But you are extraordinary. Your energy is very, very high. I noticed right away when your engineer called, uh, Tom, uh, the energy from the show and from both of you is absolutely through the roof, and I appreciate that so much. Thank you, well, especially at this hour. We, you know. we appreciate that, too, sort of a Wonder Twins power kind of thing. It's like Tom is a, is a calming and, and stabilizing influence, and and I'm and I'm I'm not I don't want to say I'm wacky, but you know we're we're trying to do the best that we can to stay as um as uh, as just enthusiastic as possible during these challenging times, and as people want to go ahead and kind of make those differences in their lives and and kind of you know break free from whatever the norms that they had. And you talked a little bit about it that people feel you know confined in whatever sort of the rat race that they've been in. They need a little bit of inspiration, maybe permission if you will, to say, you know what, you can do this. And sometimes that's what you can do by empowering them. Okay, absolutely. And I love the fact that your energy is so up. And you said this is a very difficult time, because especially for radio people, and I have a radio show also, uh, it's very, very difficult because sometimes you just don't feel like being cheerful. And, uh, uh, you know, it's not just that your energy is high, and we appreciate that very much. So thank you. Yeah, no, that's great. So when people do come to you and they say, Joyce, you know, I've got these issues or maybe they're not even super aware of the things that they could change, but you are right. You're like, this is, you know, something that you could get into, or this is some, some ways that you could make your life better, be your best self. So talk a little bit about that. If you could kind of either inspiring people or giving that, that license or that permission to go ahead and make some of those kind of what seem to be big changes. Wow. What a great question. That's, that's terrific, Zane. They don't need permission, but anyway, here it is. <laughs> if you need to hear this, uh, be happy. I know it's very difficult because people are confined. They're worried. They don't know whether to send their children back to school. Oh, by the way, homeschooling is probably the way of the future. I don't think that this is really going to work out too well. But anyway, that's just uh, an aside from what I'm feeling. The um, main source of inspiration has to come from within and also understanding what's really going on. This is a push for, I hate to, I don't want to sound like a, a conspiracy person because I'm not, but it's essentially a push for vaccinations, which uh, have not always proven to be the best for society. So the virus was unleashed on the world, and now we're trying to find a solution for it, and probably the only solution they can come up with is vaccination. But even that's not going to work well. So the fact is that we have to find alternative ways of being happy and surviving. And you have to keep your immune system strong. It's much better than any vaccination you could probably possibly ever come up with. And by keeping your immune system strong, you have to have either sunshine or vitamin D, and I'm not, I'm not recommending because I'm not a doctor, but I'm telling you what Spirit has told me. You need sunshine. And uh, heat will actually kill the virus, but you, it's probably hotter than we need to be. It's like sauna temperature would be right, and the uh, viruses would be killed. 
but of course all the saunas are closed. So anyway, I was thinking of getting a portable sauna. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to get a sauna, put it, I'm going to put one in my home. But uh, the main thing is to keep your immune system strong. How can you do that? Proper diet. Don't eat bad, cheap food. Have, I know you're worried about money in most cases, but try whatever money you have, or if you have food stamps or whatever you, you have at this time, don't give in to eating poorly because your immune system cannot be compromised. You have to keep your happiness level high as well as your food intake, and you have to drink a lot of water. If you have enough water, the virus cannot exist. The, mm. You really do have to drink a lot. Uh, keep drinking water, and if possible, it has to be purified water. And if there's, uh, I, hate to, I hate to say this, but I want to say it anyway, if there's a shutdown of our food supply, which may happen, and we all know about this, if you have any ground or place to plant food, you absolutely should do it. I do not. I live in a small condo, so I have no place. But what I can do is get one of these um, indoor planters that are circular and get a few of those and start planting your own food if you can possibly do it. Or buy food now, stock up now on things that you can save because this is going to be a, a fear tactic to help people stay in their place of fear where we want to be empowered and not in a place of fear. You mentioned... So I guess the thing well, you mentioned. Go, go no, ahead, Dan. no, no. Well, you, you mentioned kind of empowering people, and this is a time when people are focusing on their inability to control whether it's the work situation, certainly, you know, the the global health situation, and so many things about their lives are sort of up in the air, and you don't have that control. And and I think you hit on it. It's one of the most important things. Is the the best thing that you can do is not get it in the first place. As much as we project all sorts of amazing things on our medical community and on vaccines and and therapeutics and all that kind of stuff. The, the key is to really, and you hit on it, keep your immune system as high as you can and so that you are resistant to it from a from a personal basis. And so I, and I think that allows people to kind of take control of their personal situation, too. And it's one of the things that you can control. That's great to think about that as far as the food. You know, you have the opportunity now to go ahead, and so many people are doing that, you know, making their own food, their own food kind of experimenting, having fun with food and trying to do things that are healthier. Get out there, get some sun. You know, that's great. And, you know, the sauna thing, I think that's a pretty cool thing, too. Maybe I guess you could sit in the shower and turn the heat on if you don't have a sauna. But um, the, gar- <laughs> the gardening thing, too, is like we're starting to do some of that, and it's been really great. Well, you know, you're terrific, really. What you said is brilliant, and people really need to listen to you. It's such an honor to have an intelligent host who's bringing forth truth and understanding. That's really great. So uh, the um, what I would suggest, in addition to what we already said, is meditation is very important. Nobody knows really how to meditate. It's very difficult. Sitting quietly, try to find a, a quiet place someplace where you can listen to the voice within. If you believe in prayer, start each day with a prayer and each day with a prayer. Prayer and meditation are very, very important. The next thing is humor, laughing and joking. If you say, well, I don't feel like joking and laughing because all my friends have died. Okay, that's very sad. But you know what? Life goes on, and we have to survive. So I love the comedy channel. I see so many readings of people who are grieving, who are, who are in hospitals. I work in hospice a lot. 
you know, I, I deal with nothing but sadness. The thing that helps me most of all, in addition to prayer and meditation, is <laughs> try not to tell me I'm an idiot, the comedy channel, where they have uh, comedians on, this, on your cell phone, one right after another. That's... And you have Rodney Dangerfield and Robin Williams and incredibly funny people. And it will raise your energy, and that's what I want to do. It is. They, they, you always hear that, and you don't know if it's just a figure of speech. And people say that laughter is the best medicine, and the prescription is to is to laugh. We know that people who laugh are happier. They're happier not only with themselves, but with their friends and family if they can laugh together. It's an amazing kind of extra thing that you, as silly like you said, is as silly as as it is. Um, it is something that is very important. We're going to take a break, and when we come back. You mentioned being sad and upset because you've lost all of your friends have passed away, and so many people are dealing with that as a very serious thing and but we're going to talk about the seven different things that you can do to be able to connect with your loved ones present uh and past and kind of you know kind of channel into some of the gifts that you may have that are underdeveloped so quick break we'll be back uh with more with joyce keller it's staying here on 720 wgn Seven twenty, WGN. It is Dane here with you, high atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio, and continuing our conversation with acclaimed psychic medium author Joyce Keller. And uh, Joyce, welcome back. Thank you, thank you, Dane. I appreciate that. And one so, of, one of the things I wanted to mention, we'll kind of set it up a little bit, is is you had mentioned that you do a lot of work with uh, you know in a hospice situation, and that you know one hundred fifty plus thousand people have passed away. All of those people, at least you know most of them, have friends and family that are grieving them, and 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 maybe new people that are looking to to try to you know either reach them or communicate or or somehow make contact with them on the other side. And so let's talk a little bit about that. You know, how to communicate with your departed loved ones. You make it easy. It isn't just as mysterious as maybe it would normally be. You've got seven steps to get there. <laughs> I wrote that book a long time ago. I don't even remember. But I'll tell you what I, I do believe works. Uh, you cannot always communicate with the person you want to communicate with because they may cross over and they may be sleeping for a while. Other people cross over, like my husband, was communicating because he's in the business with me. He co-hosted my show with me for many years. So when he crossed over, he was right there immediately. I was speaking to the undertaker and the coroner who was making arrangements, and Jack was standing right there, and he said, don't be sad. He said, you know, I'll help you. (laughs) He was helping making the arrangements for his own funeral. So there's a tremendous amount of awareness when they cross over but not always. Sometimes people are traumatized by their death, and they do choose to, to sleep for a while. So they may be hard to communicate. And people say, uh, "Can you please, you know, reach out and get my mother for me?" Well, I will try, but it's not always possible. Uh, the people who communicate with us really want to do so, but it has to be respectfully, and it has to be without fear. If they think that you're afraid they're going to back off. They're not going to be able to come through with with as much power and as much strength. The best way to start that communication in the safest possible way is to have a little notebook and a little pencil or pen by your bed. And for those folks who say, I don't dream, it's not possible. You do dream. You just don't remember. Now, as the energy on the earth is changing, 
you're going to be remembering more and more of those dreams. So get ready. And spirit is speaking to you. So the number one way is try to remember your dreams. Before you go to sleep at night, say, I really would like to have that communication and clear messages. My husband comes to me all the time and tells me to do this. Don't forget that. Don't forget the air and the tires. We'll cross the tire, which you get. You know, and don't, and your gas is running low in the car. I'm thinking, how can I ever get married again? Which I, I, I'm not dating at all. So <laughs> I'm saying when, he, when he's so active. <laughs> like, oh, he's looking like, out you know. for you. you. You need him. Like our producer, Tom, has a question related to this. Yeah. So when of it comes course. when it comes to your experience in hospice situations, you know you are in a room uh, with someone who is generally speaking in their last days, potentially last hours. And I was curious about what when you're in that situation, what is your role, and how do you communicate with both the person in hospice and the people in that room with them? Oh, Tom, that's that's a great question. Usually, it's not necessary because when they start going into the death process, they start talking to their loved ones themselves, and I'm right there with them. And I can see they're saying, oh, hi, Mom, hi, it's great to see you. And you can see the energy changing as they're leaving. And they will have that communication themselves in many cases. They, if they're drugged, at the end, it may, it may be more difficult, but you ask my role. My role is to say, go into the light. You're going to be fine. Look, it's so, it's so much better than it is here because by that point, they're probably hooked up to intravenous, so, you know, drips of some kind. You'll be free of all of this. Now, when my mother, my mother crossed over, she had, never, she had not been able to walk. Since she was in high school, she had an accident. So I never knew a mother who, my mother could never walk. Okay, so when she, but she was wonderful. And when she passed away in her 70s, she came to me that night and she said to me, look what I can do. And she was doing cartwheels and she was running back and forth. She said, I can't believe this is so wonderful. And I was shocked because I had never seen my mother run run or walk. She was doing cartwheels and jumping. And then she went over a hill, and then I didn't see her again for quite a while. Like about a year passed before I saw her again. Um, but the death process is very liberating, and it's really joyful if you go at the right time. And by that, I mean don't commit suicide. But if you go when you're supposed to go, it's terrific. Now, if you commit suicide, then you may have to re-experience whatever you're running away from. So I mean, that's between you and the creator and you know, the suicide. You don't burn in hell. I know that because I've been there. I know it doesn't happen. You don't get plummeted into hell forever. That doesn't happen. So I don't know, Tom, if that answers your question, but I don't even remember the question. No. <laughs> I think it does. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll throw this in there. So I've had my own experience with hospice. Uh, my father was in home hospice when I was 17. And, uh, uh-huh. My mother told me a story, the story of the the night that he passed away. She he had kind of this terrible labored breathing. Uh, I guess you might call it somewhat of a death rattle. I'm not sure if that's the correct term, but yes, uh, yes, that's yeah. it. Uh-huh. So, so very labored breathing. 
she could hear it from outside the door from where his bed was and she slept on the couch that night and uh she kind of i don't know if dreamt but sort of had a mantra saying to both herself and whatever was listening you know it's okay let him go let him rest you can go kind of communicating to him and then she fell asleep and when she awoke he had passed do you is that a common experience for the family to have that moment of communication where they say go ahead it's all right you you mentioned that you participate in that uh is that a common thing when uh you're in the room it's extremely common and if people would stop grieving i know it's, it's very difficult i sound heartless but i'm not uh the grief process cuts the awareness down by that i mean if you're grieving and your head is down and you're crying you're not gonna you're not gonna see things that you might want to see as an example when my dad left he, he was in a coma for about a week okay so i was with him for most of the time finally he took my hand, and for the first time, he was able to squeeze it, and he kind of waved to me a little bit. And I saw him take his last breath, which, as you said, was labored, and you know, he had a death rattle and all of that. And then I saw him leave, uh, like a big puff of smoke left through his solar plexus, like right in the center of his body. And it was like a big puff of smoke, and it went directly into the ceiling, and it was gone. So I asked the nurses in the room, there were a couple of nurses there, I said, did you, did you see that? And they said, oh, sure. I said, you see that? They said, you see that all the time. <laughs> so, so I said, that, that was the first time I had ever seen that. So if I had been in a place of heavy grieving, I would have missed it. That, that, that's my point. So there's a lot going on. You're never alone. You always have an angel or a guardian angel with you. They respect your privacy. Not a lot. <laughs> why do we have accidents? That's another whole show. <laughs> if we have angels, why do we have accidents? Because either we ignored the warning or it was supposed to happen. One of those two things. 312-981-7200. If, uh, if anyone wants to, to weigh in, you can go ahead and, and give Tom... Uh, he'll be able to take some of the information or, or have and be able to ask your question yourself. I'll let the listeners know we're talking with acclaimed psychic medium, Joyce Keller. Here's one of the things that kind of dovetails with not only the, the things that, that you've said that, that Tom mentioned and then some of the other situations that are happening now because of the of the of the pandemic you're having people that are maybe going into the hospital and because of the distancing they're not able to go in and do that whole kind of family around you know kind of shepherd them uh into that next life or is a friend of mine passed away in january he was fine one day relatively young and then the next day something happened and and he just just passed away where there's you don't have that opportunity to spend extended periods of time and sort of kind of finish things or tie up loose ends or talk about how you feel about each other it's all very kind of jagged and sudden there's so much left that's unsaid you said that when people pass sometimes it takes a while before they can reconnect is there a difference between you know when they pass and they feel like you've settled their affairs or whether it was sudden and you never got a chance to say so many different things it really doesn't matter uh, that's, again, callous, but it doesn't because they're aware of our feelings. They have a sudden uh, awareness, like if you send 
feelings of love or sympathy, or they'll, they'll be aware of that. And if they leave suddenly, like your friend, it's usually because they have made that arrangement. They choose to leave. They don't want to go through this. And there's another whole really bizarre situation where if you want to give up your body, another entity or person can come in rather than being born into being a baby and growing up that way. They can just take the body. And in that case, it's called a walk-in, which Ruth Montgomery wrote about in the early 70s, um, about how you can have that exchange of, of uh, body or energy. But that's very complicated. But some of that is happening now. Everything is changing. The things that were are no longer possible. So it's a whole new reality now, Dane. It's a, it, it's, so. it's fascinating stuff. It's amazing stuff. We're going to talk about trying uh, to go ahead and give people that power to go ahead, not only to entertain the ideas, the thoughts, the possibilities that can happen, but also give them some tools to be able to not only understand it, but maybe experience it themselves. We're going to take a break. and we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Joyce Keller, acclaimed psychic medium. It's Dane here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you until four a.m. In for Nick D. And on the line with us, continuing our conversation with acclaimed author, psychic medium, uh, talk show host, as well, Joyce Keller. Joyce, uh, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dane. Yep. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. If you've got a question for Joyce and want to add your thoughts as well, you can definitely do that. We do have uh, Diane on the line. Diane, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Joyce, hi, I've got a question for you, please. About 25 sure. years ago, my grandfather was in the hospital. I was with him every day for three weeks. He had a DNR posted with the hospital. Well, of course, they didn't read the the, uh, the orders, and they, they resuscitated him twice. The third time hey, they... You're breaking, Diane, you're breaking up with... Uh, I didn't hear the whole thing that you said. Can About you 25 you years said? ago... My my grandfather was in the hospital. I was with uh-huh. him about the last the last three weeks of his life. When he finally did pass away, about a month later, I was in bed one night and I saw him in the corner of my bedroom, like he was sitting on top of my door, just looking at me. It just felt kind of strange, but I've never seen him since then. Well, all right. Well, thank you, Diane. I appreciate okay. the call. I just wanted to respond to that, if I if I may, Dave. Sure. Uh, I wanted to say sometimes, as I was telling you about my mother, they'll come, and then you won't see them again for a long time. There are other dimensions, and they, in the case, in this particular case, Dan, I feel he was uh, called to training. There's a lot of teaching and training on the other side. So I wanted to see that with you, if I may. Yeah, Diane, your thoughts on that? Uh, he was training? Yeah, there, there are, um, I, I wouldn't say exactly schools, but it's, not, it's schools and there are libraries. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are, I feel like he wasn't training and he just not, uh, he did not, when we don't see people for a long while after they cross over, they're usually in some kind of training either to come back to the earth 
or to act as a spirit guide or, or to do whatever is right for them. There are cosmic libraries where they can go and people who are either on this side of the veil or the other can both uh, go to these libraries where we can enrich our knowledge and grow. And I feel that when we don't see people, it's because we're doing something else. There are many choices. That's the point I wanted to make. I don't know if I made that clear, Diane. Yeah, okay. Yes, I appreciate it. Thank you, Joyce. Right. But he's doing very well, Diane. He's really fine. You're a terrific person, Diane. Thank you very much for calling. All right. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Diane, for, for weighing in on the show. And I've heard these stories before, Joyce, and if you could kind of weigh in on this, is that sometimes, you know, the person goes over to the other side and that they do not only communicate with other loved ones that would be part of it, but maybe other people that can help kind of either shepherd them through the process or help them to be able to reconnect with loved ones or other people on the other side. Do you find that where you'll see somebody connect and they've obviously been assisted uh, by other people yeah. over there? Most definitely. That's the terrific question, Dane. They, they can absolutely be in the position of helping people cross over, especially many children who cross over are in the position of being so sweet and so angelic and being able to assist. And you, it's so helpful to those of us who are crossing. So I don't know if that answered your question, but the answer is there are many, many jobs, and that's one of the the most beautiful job is to help us in that crossing over process, which, by the way, is an excellent experience. Uh, I've had near-death experiences. I know that to be the case. More and more people are coming out now and talking about their near-death experiences, about how they were shown what is happening. And they don't want to come back to the earth. They say, no, no, I'd like to stay here. It's so much better. But usually... We have to come back. So I wanted to say that. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the near-death experience. That is one of the most <laughs> fascinating things. I've read you know, some books on it and seen some things on it. And one of the things that regardless of whether it's background or, or language or demographics or anything that this, that the experiences, and even if the people haven't met each other, and usually they haven't, are kind of universal. And it's the kind of thing that I think adds extra credibility. You'll have skeptics on the other side saying it's just you know, some sort of neurons or a short circuit of the brain that provides this similar experience. What are your thoughts on that? So when people have a near-death experience, what is that typical kind of process, and what do they feel or see before they either don't go all the way over and then come back? Okay, that's such a complicated question and answer, but it's beautiful, Dane. Thank you for asking. I, I, I just wish we had more time. The, the thing is, the, the determining factor is what's known as, as the, what the, the Indian, what they know in, in India, uh, is a silver cord that connects us while it's, it's called the Sutratna, which connects us to the Godhead as human beings. And when we're only in a near-death experience, that silver cord stays intact. It does not break and we're able to navigate throughout the universe and beyond as long as it stays intact and we can have a near-death experience. But once the silver cord is severed at the actual physical, this is very nebulous because there's a lot of uh, gray area, like with brain dead and all of that, but once the silver cord, which connects us to 
call it what you will, heaven or God, whatever you want to call it, once it's broken, there's no returning to the body. The body starts the uh, disintegration process. But up until that point, we can continue to come back and we can... So when we travel, say, to the cosmic library when we're sleeping or anything like that, we're going to be connected by the silver cord. Uh, there have been many, many uh, stories and articles written about this. You can probably say, well, what about going through the tunnel as part of the death experience? Well, I don't know because it's different in every case. But again, I think the determining factor of death is the, this cord that connects us. And you can say, well, you know, what is it really? It's an etheric cord. It's not physical. It's probably the first person who wrote about this, again, was going back to the 60s and 70s when Shirley McLean wrote Out on a Limb. And she actually showed on television uh, when they came out with it uh, as a movie what the silver cord is like. And that's the determining factor. Now, the part I would ask you, Dane, is are people who are brain dead actually dead? Is the silver cord intact? See, that's different for everyone. So what do you think? Hmm. You know, I, I don't know, because you've seen some of those situations where, and that's why mm-hmm. it's always tough to, to make those decisions to do not resuscitate or whatever, because you've, you've heard instances where people are, you know, the doctor will say, oh, they're going to be a vegetable, they're not going to be able to come back, then this and that, and then sometimes they do, you know, I'm sure the doctors oftentimes are right, but sometimes the, the people do come back, and so... I don't know. You know, you, you want to trust the, I guess, I, I don't know if it's maybe you can tap in or maybe it's sort of a gut feeling or maybe you know that person because some people say, well, we know he would fight to be able to stay alive or they see some certain signs. And I guess you would just go with that. You know, uh, science is progressing to the point where the moment of death is almost impossible to determine. And that's a frightening thing to say because it comes down to the family's decision about pulling the plug and, and so forth. And a lot of times they pull the plug and the person comes back and they're perfectly fine. And usually it's a different entity that comes in and takes over the body and then like the next day they're home eating breakfast. So there's a lot of gray area in the whole topic which needs to be studied. And I think the people who are writing and talking about near-death experiences, and there are thousands of them now. If you go on the, the web, all you do is put in near-death experiences, and you see all these people are talking about it. But they've had these incredible experiences where they have shown, they have been able to, to see a life review. Now, the life review is really important because every single thing we do is recorded. When I was a little kid, my mother said, you know, God has a big book. He's going to write in this book what you're doing. And I, I really didn't believe it at the time, but it turns out there really is a big book, and it's about every lifetime, every single thing we've ever done, every good deed, every bad deed. And when you cross over, all of that is reviewed in the life review. And you have a choice usually at that point about coming back or, or staying in uh, the non-physical. It's, so does, does that make sense? It, well, I mean, it does. It does and it doesn't. Obviously, it's so foreign to a lot of the things that we've been grown up and grown up thinking. But for those people that want to 
learn more and experience more. And there are people like yourself that has made it their not only passion, but life's work. And as we let you go, we know that it's JoyceKeller.com. We'll have links up at WGNRadio.com. But um, in the next like 30 seconds or so, if you want to share, if you've got social media or ways that people can keep up with you, continue the conversation and kind of share your adventures. Uh, Dana, I appreciate that very much. Thank you. It's just my website. It's JoyceKeller, K-E-L-L-E-R dot com. And if people want books or read, I, I don't sell any books. They're all out there somewhere. I, I don't know anything about <laughs> I'm working on my 11th book. That's all I know. And doing readings. And if I can help people in any way, uh, the free readings are usually on my radio show or if people are in dire need, uh, but uh, they can order them through my website. So. Thank you again, Dan, for this opportunity. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. com. We appreciate you taking time and sharing uh, all the stuff that you're doing, the insight and, of course, the inspiration. We'll have links up at WGN Radio. Joyce, thanks so much for taking time and jumping on the show tonight. Oh, I love you, Dan. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, that's it. Now, Tom, you got an opportunity to to ask a question for Joyce and and for those people that have been in that experience, 312-981-7200. We'll continue that conversation uh, as we go out throughout the night. If people want to share some things, we'll get those information uh, and those messages over to, to Joyce as well. Coming up after the news, we are going to have an opportunity to uh, to kind of get out there and experience some things uh, on the travel side. We're going to talk with uh, travel guru Eileen Ogins. She's got some ideas and some insights on how you can get out and experience some things. If the kids are doing the remote learning, uh, if the kids are, if you're doing remote working and you want to be able to do it not only from your living room where you've been, but maybe from, uh, I don't know, not an island in Bali, but maybe from one of our national parks, I think that would be pretty cool. Tom, have you ever taken one of those kind of, uh, you know, gone to one of the national parks? Are you kind of an outdoorsy guy? You like to camp um, at one with nature, <laughs> hunting and fishing? Uh, let's just say when I was in Boy Scouts, my Boy Scout leader wait a minute how far did you go in boy scouts i got all the way to i think um bear scout or so i didn't oh, quite make it, it to weebelows oh was that well that's cub scouts that's like quite little you just said scout i didn't know scout. Didn't... oh yeah no there's two levels i made it all the way through cub scouts but uh got to boy scouts and my camp leader you know the troop leader said that my idea of roughing it was staying at a marriott so well, Marriotts. You know, if you go to some of the lower end be, properties, they can right? Be tough, yeah. tough. You know, with the they, continental breakfast, they don't and, even have HBO. What's that all about? Right. I don't know. Well, you know, now the national parks not only have been <laughs> open and welcoming, but a lot of them have maybe a Wi-Fi situation because of the pandemic. You're seeing less rangers uh, out there, kind of taking care of things. But all that information, virtual rangers, are available uh, online and on the internet. So we'll talk with Eileen about that. We're going to get a little insight into 2021 and ways to book that perfect vacation and get an amazing uh, deal on some of those things as well as maybe a dude ranch uh, and some of the ways you can get out there and enjoy yourself. So stay tuned for that. It's staying here 720 WGN. Here's the news. Somewhere beyond the sea Somewhere waiting for me my lover stands on golden sands and watches the ships that go sailing somewhere.
It's 720 WGN High atop Chicago Skyline Studio right here. And uh, what is a beautiful night, right? And uh, it looks outside and looks like the, the future is bright for so many things. And travel is one of those. As I look out the window, I see the Sheraton that has hotel rooms all in the shape and the entire size. It's probably a 30-story building in the shape of a heart. I'd ask my producer, Tom, wow, that's great. What are they doing? That sometimes here in Chicago, you'll have buildings that either kind of illuminate specifically and strategically for you know supporting sporting events or holidays or things like that. He's like, nope. That's been there for four months because there aren't any rooms booked in it, and they've just got got it done. So here to navigate not only that, but when it comes to the kids and taking them, whether it's taking them back to school or taking them on great vacations, you know her from all of her stuff. Good Morning America, the Today Show, her syndicated column, and of course, TakingTheKids.com. It is the incomparable, the unstoppable Eileen Ogins. Welcome back to WGN. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah, it's great to have you. In these, in these challenging times, people still want to try to enjoy what they can and and as a family that is one of the things that we're looking we're looking to try to do people have uh, gotten an opportunity to get to know each other over the months <laughs> hopefully got an opportunity to realize we like each other and uh, and now it's it's time to well we're going to hit on a, quite a few things not only the the things that you typically do family travel and that but some of this, the the kids are now either traveling to or not to school for remote learning and i guess there's some opportunities there um, I, yeah, I think uh, a lot of the nation's biggest uh, school districts, including Chicago, I think, as well as universities are all going to remote learning. And I think with so many parents still working from home, there's an opportunity there for a fall vacation that might teach the kids um, something. And so many people don't want to fly understandably but with remote learning as long as you have wi-fi basically a lot of the country can be your oyster you know whether you're traveling by car or rv um so i you know i i think for example um most families wouldn't or never would have been able to go to a national park in the fall but that's a great time let's say to visit the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone, you know, um, also there's for those with teenagers or college kids, there's unprecedented opportunity for rafting trips Ooh. this summer from companies like Oars and Western River Expeditions, both in the Grand Canyon and elsewhere, you know, and what better place to social distance, learn about geology, learn about ancient people's than doing that well when it comes to the the national parks and i know you and i have talked uh, about them and a variety of them maybe some of the underappreciated ones and reasons to get out no matter what but this is that time right where you can get out social distance yourself in a in a in a really great educational kind of bucket list way and finally get out there and see some of those national parks i'm not sure if they're all either open or limited capacity but i gotta think that there's probably opportunities out there and as time has gone on and the parks are looking to become more friendly with the residents they have probably stepped up their game on the wi-fi side eileen and, and you may not know this and we can look it up and and maybe even some of the listeners can can weigh in but there are, are there some parks that that you've heard have made more of a commitment to try to be you know wi-fi and connectivity friendly um i honestly haven't seen great wi-fi in the park visited 
this summer. But the majority of people don't stay in the parks. You know, they're staying like if people are going to Yellowstone, they're probably staying in Jackson or West Yellowstone or something like that. So they would have connectivity there. Um, a few caveats with the National Parks, whether you're going to a less visited one or Yellowstone, for example. Um, some, like Rocky Mountain National Park, for example, in Colorado is having limited um, admission. Others aren't, but you need to be uh, cognizant that there aren't going to be any ranger programs. Um, visitor centers are closed for the most part. So you're, you're going to have to really do your homework ahead of time. Um, lodging is limited, so you don't want to show up without reservations. Um, and if you are RVing, uh, in some places, it's tougher to get an RV reservation than it is to get a hotel reservation. So, and, and because the situation is so fluid, you want to before a visit, let's say you want to check a week or two ahead, then you want to check the park's website the night before and then the morning of your visit so you won't be disappointed. Well, here's um, here's the thing, too, is it, I think this is a great opportunity. You look for some of those silver linings through all the uh, apocalyptic negativity and, and you look at the, I think, one of the great uh, I think advocates that you have for the national parks is people who've been there before, right? And they're able to go ahead and say those things. But then you have sites like takingthekids.com and you have sites, uh, you know, or just the internet in general that can be your guidance. You don't necessarily just have to depend on the ranger or a pamphlet that you may get on site. And there's so many resources out there, probably, probably videos, right? From different people who've traveled oh, there that sure. can say like, Hey, check this YouTube. out. And, um, a hidden resource that a lot of people probably don't realize is every big park has an area on their website that's pretty easy to find uh, for teachers, you know, for <laughs> teachers who are taking their kids on field trips. Um, it's free. You know, you can use that to help plan your own national park adventures, you know. Um, and another thing is, you may or may not be able to find the junior ranger booklets that the kids like um, just because you may or may not find a ranger around. Like right. I, I found a ranger stationed outside the visitor center at Grand Teton National Park, but nobody at Glacier or um, Yellowstone. So, wow. you know, you can kind of create your own junior ranger well you can yeah you can find out some of those highlights and maybe even you know see online a printable or even or at least readable or something that you could have on your tablet as far as maybe the, the ranger and, booklet we're, we're gonna wait hold on one second i think we've got to take a quick break and when okay. we come back we're gonna have more she has mentioned some of the superstars of the national parks that would be in that team photo of places to visit we'll talk about those and maybe some others when we come back eileen ogans is with us here it's dane on 720 WGN. You're looking kind of lonely, girl. Would you like someone new to talk to? Oh, yeah. 
720 WGN, it is Dane here with you, back with travel guru, icon, Eileen Ogans from TakingTheKids.com. And uh, this is an opportunity as the kids do some remote learning to make the remote part of that learning something uh, not only cool, but maybe educational, magical, maybe vacational. I'm not even sure if that's a word. Eileen, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. You've always been an advocate of the national parks and not only just the the big ones that come to mind when people think about it, but all of those that are around the country. So let's talk about all of them or at least some of them that you think might be good starters for people to check out. Um, There are the big ones. And the one thing I would say about the big ones is, you know, obviously you're going to want to see Old Faithful or the rim of the Grand Canyon. But these places are so big if you want a social distance, there's, uh, you know, a zillion places to go. Um, and I would like look online first, not only for um, websites, but also for books like Falcon Guides has has a nice book about best easy day hikes in Yellowstone National Park. Um there's a lot of books for kids. If, if you look up each park's uh, conservancy, you know, they'll ha- you can order books online in, in advance. Um, and the, my only caveat with the less visited, visited ones, you know, they tend to have the, um, the least resources. So right. you want to – there it's especially important to um, – you know, make sure what's going on there to, to, pl- um, to plan ahead and and kind of look at some of the things that you that you'd want to do. And then I would also say, you know, everybody's been wanting to get outdoors, and uh, all the experts say that with organized sports, that kids really need the exercise. So I think another option would be to take a road trip to a mountain town, you know, like Aspen, Breckenridge, uh, Park City, you know, among them, where you have your pick of hiking, biking, rafting, you know, plenty of social distancing all around. And we're coming into fall season where uh, it can be some of the cheapest rates of the year wow so let's we're going to talk a little bit about that because that is great in the mountains that's a great suggestion we've had an, uh, our schedule get cleared in some ways based on so many things that we would do on the work side or schedule or or different events have well they've disappeared and so the opportunity to get out there our kids believe it or not eileen as much as they've traveled and done some amazing things and been at places that you know no kids would normally be at they've i don't think they've ever seen a mountain in person and that sounds that sounds like really great plus on the exercise side you've got that there so one thing is is the hotels i know that there's some great deals out there you're right on the rving side we tried to look one up a couple months ago and it's like man they're just they're gone you know people are, are doing that because it is one of the few at least considered safe ways to do it on the camping side is that something are the campgrounds open um, is that something people can do they can certainly camp. I think one of the reasons for the big uh, uptick in RVing is because families feel more comfortable with their own bathroom and their own kitchen right now. So I would tell people that if they, um, you know, if they really think they want to do an RV trip, keep 
checking like sites like um, Outdoorsy, you know, those kind of sites and see what's available. Um, there was a new, I don't think this would really help Chicagoans, but there was a new site where they were going to have fully rigged out RVs at some airports around the country for people to pick up. So like, let's say you could drive to Denver or Salt Lake or something and then pick up an, pick up an RV there. But um, other than camping, you know, the, the other option would be condos, which would give you the same thing, you know, your private, a private bathroom and, um, you'd be able to cook. And we just got back from um, a few days in Aspen. And one of them that I really like is called the Gant. Um, yes. There are many to choose yeah. from, but the, the Gant is just a few blocks from uh, the Aspen gondola in downtown. And um, it has a pool, you know, it has, it, you can order artisanal pizza, but the kids will have plenty of room to, spread out and ride bikes and in in the fall the rates really drop you know what eileen is i was i wanted to mention this and i know that you're uh really an aficionado of of the mountains and specifically some of the ski stuff in in colorado listeners to you know our programs and stuff that we do in the food side i've covered the the classic at aspen the food and wine classic a number of years broadcast live from there it is an amazing uh place it would be a great place to take kids and when you talk about for chicagoans you know at this at this time of night i you know we reach 38 states in canada you know being a former chicago and kind of the reach of wgn so there's people all over the country that are hearing this um this right now so when it comes to those areas you're making me think about a lot of things you know whether it's Vale or or, or aspen are there ones maybe some can't miss places or things that you would recommend even over and above in that sort of i don't want to say too far from denver but within striking distance well there's also um which is a really good value the ymca of the rockies (laughs) what a difference from like from the get to the ymca but maybe it's not the ymca like we have Uh, here in the city you know, really, um, we've had a lot of family reunion there, but they have um, individual cabins. You know, it's an Estes Park. It's really beautiful. Nice. Oh, that's Not great. far from um, Rocky Mountain National Park. And they have a lot of um, complimentary activities, you know, like mini golf and basketball and, you know, all kind a uh, uh, craft center, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And that's affordable. For sure. Estes Park um, is, is you're making me, th- I've, I was there as a kid, we went to Estes Park, and for the film fans out there, that was right where they filmed The Shining, right? I don't know if it, it was called The right, Overlook, right? You're right, yes. That hotel, I, whose name escapes me, but yeah, you're you're right. And, um, uh, you know, Park City is another really good bet. You could visit Dinosaur National Monument in Utah, um, and, you know, all of these places now, they have mountain bike, lots and lots of mountain biking and road biking, and it doesn't cost anything to go hiking, you know. Right. Um, but then also the opportunities to maybe try fly fishing, play golf, play frisbee golf. Um, Keystone, which is one of the closest ski areas to Colorado, has... Um, Lots of free activities for kids at the base of the mountain, which which is always a plus. You know, every day they 
they have something else I don't know yet what they're going to be doing in um, in fall, but uh, they will be doing uh, some stuff because fall is really beautiful out here. Jackson, of course, is the gateway um, to Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Park. And then, you know, all of these places like um, like Aspen has the Aspen Center for Environmental Studies, you know, that offers sure. a lot of free programs. And then I just wanted to mention, you know, one of the things everybody's been saying is kids with special needs have been especially um, left behind, you know, with schools being closed. And many of these mountain communities have adaptive sports centers, and they're not only for, um, uh, you know, winter sports. Uh, so, uh so that, you know, if you have a child on the autism spectrum who or is in a wheelchair or what is blind, you know, or deaf, whatever the issues are, um, if you were thinking about a mountain getaway, uh, check, uh, check for those in Park City, Winter Park, Breckenridge, Aspen, Crested mm-hmm. Butte, and many have a sliding scale, too, for programs. Wow. So if you're, if you're um, you know what you can pay shouldn't really be an issue well, okay so, so we, we, we've covered a few of the like a lot of the really great ones that would be you know heading west and within striking distance of the chicago area and for the in, in a minute or two before we got to go to the next break is like do you have a couple that you'd suggest for those people that want to head east um i'm hesitant about doing that because as far as i know maine and vermont still have right. um uh, 14-day uh, quarantine in place, but um, you know, certainly if you want to head east, and I would check and see what's happening, but Maine, Maine is a great bet. Massachusetts is a great bet. Um, the islands off of Massachusetts, Nantucket, and Martha's Vineyard in the fall will be affordable. Um, and you know, then you could think about um, going towards uh, North or Southern uh, uh, Carolina, going to the Carolinas. But two caveats before you go anywhere, you know, I carefully look at what the virus is doing in those places and what the latest is on, um, you know, on what the quarantine requirements are. So that would be, I mean, I don't think people really want to go to California or Florida right now, for Uh for example. Yep. It has been, it has been a moving target, Eileen, as far as like what's, I mean, and I don't mean moving target, like, well, you got to kind of plan for it. You can't even really plan for it because, you know, it it changes from almost, I don't want to say day to day, but really it does feel like as far as the vibe of, well, this seems doable and this doesn't, and then that changes. And, and unfortunately it hasn't changed completely to the positive. So we appreciate the insight on that. When we come back from this break, we are going to talk about planning ahead and doing what you can. And Eileen's been doing a lot of that and has her hand on the 
pulse of so many things that may be changing in the future. I know like a lot of listeners, we've seen some pretty incredible deals and you're thinking to yourself, it's that sliding scale of risk reward saying, hey, this is a great airfare or this would be an awesome vacation. And of course, you're weighing that with I don't want to get sick or possibly you know, die. So we're going to talk with her about that when we come back. Eileen Ogans is with us at Stain here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you. High atop Chicago Skyline Studio. On the line with us uh, is, of course, Eileen Ogans. You know her as that uh, acclaimed uh, travel guru and the person behind TakingTheKids.com, giving us all of those great travel destinations, family-friendly getaways and vacations. And now, you know, they always say, whether he who fails to plan, plans to fail. And as we are all kind of looking at some opportunities that may be happening, unfortunately, 2021. But you know what? It's going to get here. Eileen, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, okay, go ahead, Eileen, like fill us in because we, we need a little guidance. There are so many things we see as opportunities. We don't know really, here's that thing, whether, Hey, could it even get better? Or are these things that we think are going to hold for 21? Well, it's not only 21, but it could be for 22, you know, (laughs) as well. So, um, I, I think that the things people need to consider, uh, in the first place is what's the cancellation policy. For example, a lot of cruise lines are offering, um, you know, very liberal cancellation policies. Um, Should you not be able to go, let's say, if you were planning that Mediterranean cruise or, or to the Caribbean or, Alaska, you know, whatever. But the airlines are more difficult because the airlines will say, well, we will give you your money back if your flight is canceled. But otherwise, they typically have been holding on to your money, giving you a credit. And that isn't really going to do you any good. Let's say if you want to go to London and the UK isn't allowing Americans in. So I would, you know, if you're going to plan ahead, I would, the way things are right now, I would plan as far ahead as you can and get travel insurance and um, insist on a liberal cancellation fee. That said, there are really good deals um, for cruises, for hotels, you know, for all kinds of things. And it could be a fun time for families to, um, you know, spend a lot of time cruising. I mean, not cruising, but a lot of time planning, you know. We were supposed to have gone to Greece on this great celestial cruise, uh, which is a Greek-owned company until it got canceled (laughs) in June. But I'm still hoping... We might be able to go next year, if not next year, the year after. So um, I think people will be safe starting to plan um, towards the end of 2021. You know, um, same thing with the ski trip, uh, 
all kinds of things like that. So this may, like Eileen said, this may be the time to plan that sort of, and you've got to find out, you've got to work with companies that you know that you can trust, that you can count on, that you think might not go out of business and, you know, and that it's, it's a little bit stable, but plan for maybe that dream vacation, let's say to maybe, you know, Hawaii or some islands and not in 21, but set it up and get it all locked in for, for 2022. And for Chicagoans out that are saying, geez, that's so far, I could never plan that far. If any of us remember, getting tickets for the bozo show i remember my grandmother got me tickets for the bozo show i think i was in like third grade and the tickets for when for when i was like 16 and so we were perfectly happy planning that far ahead so this isn't even this isn't even that bad but eileen is that the kind of thing is maybe kind of like do you have that fun planning go really big and plan for maybe 22 um, some people are saying that, you know, cause they're saying, well, we didn't do a big vacation this year. We may not do one next year. So let's go to Alaska in 2022, you know, or let's rent a villa, um, some somewhere. Um, so I, I think there's that. And another thing people can do, uh, companies that specialize in, small group adventure travel uh, companies people know like back roads for example or g adventures or um austin adventures you know uh, rei they've started to offer uh to make that group your own personal group you know with six people or eight people um just your family, let's say, or maybe it's two families together. And you can feel comfortable working with a well-established company like that because um, if things change, they will take care of you. You know, if you have to switch destinations or uh, switch flights or whatever it would be. Now, they're not inexpensive, but on the other hand, they probably are not much more expensive than a week at Disney World for a family. So that might be something for people to consider. Well, and, I, and Eileen kind of fill people in on that because this is really a luxury because you're getting people, you're getting usually that, that I think, attention and, and a lot of that benefiting from the expertise and experience of the tour guide that normally would be for an entire group. And you're getting that for your, you know, it's really an intimate setting. And I mean, there's got to be some huge value to that. No, totally, because uh, their guides know wherever you're going to be. Let's say if you were going to Yellowstone, you know, they would know the hikes to get out of the crowd. Um, They would have an extra guide to entertain the kids. They take care of meals and luggage. And it's it's really nice, you know, to a nice way to go but instead of having a group of 20 as you say you might just have your family or a group of eight so that's that would be an option you know if people are planning out for a year or two from now and um they also have all relaxed their cancellation fees um a dude ranch might be another option you know i i think um we visited one in Montana this summer, uh, Flathead Lake Lodge, uh, which has been in the same family for 75 years. Now, normally their crowd would be a fly crowd. This year, they've had many more, as have other ranches, many more people driving because uh, they're, you know, 
people have more time, so uh, they're opting, they don't want to fly, so they're opting to drive, you know, and have a longer trip and make a stay at a ranch, um, you know, part of a long, a longer trip instead of the whole vacation. So, you know, I, I, I am confident that by 2022, the end of 2021, people will be able to go to Europe again. Um, I'm a little hesitant to, to suggest booking individually. I know a lot of people who booked in Italy, uh, at small hotels had trouble getting their money back, um, this year. So, um, that would be something to consider. And, and also with travel insurance, you definitely will want to have travel insurance. It's very important, but again, you've got to really read the fine, fine print because they may not cover you. Let's say if you just decide they don't cover epidemics, typically, <laughs> so, you know, if you just, if you've booked a trip to Portugal and somehow there's a spike, um, you know, that's going to be an issue about getting your money back. If you go to the Bahamas and you get sick, they'll cover you, you know? So you just have to be really, really careful. It's so, it's so crazy, Eileen, because you think about it. We always hear those funny commercials. I think we have some here on WGN where they joke about covering of, of a zombie apocalypse. And of course, this isn't really in a real world sense too far from that. And and even on some of those where they may cover things that would be considered, and, and I guess this would fall into the sort of an act of God thing, but if your country just happens to be because of whether it's, you know, circumstances or policies or whatever is, you know, your country is, is barred from traveling to that they may not see that overseas as their problem they may see that as is something that falls into your problem category we're going to take a break and we come back and i've got to say you've got to be able to listen to eileen ogans and take her as one of the uh one of the authorities and certainly the guides for this she mentioned portugal we're talking to portugal a little bit later on uh tonight on the show and she was one of those first people. Now it's you know one of those hot destinations. Everybody knows about it, wants to go there or go back there for a second time. And Eileen was one of those pioneers as an ambassador for Portugal as a travel destination, one of those very first a long time ago last year, right? So quick break. We're going to come back more with Eileen Ogans. It's Dane here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane back here with you. Hi, top Chicago on the line. We've got travel guru, acclaimed writer, author, and of course the force behind taking the kids dot com. Eileen Ogans and Eileen. 
Um, we were talking about some of that travel overseas and, and some of the just the, kind of the pitfalls and challenges and things that you can't necessarily um, account for or, or plan for. And, and one of the ways that people have always gotten around maybe some of the challenges of visiting and staying in and visiting uh, foreign countries was cruising, right? Where you could have that stable home base that would allow you to get off and see the sights and sounds and food of a foreign country, but still have sort of the home base of the cruise ship. And the cruise ship and that industry has been hit as hard as any in the travel world. So many schedules and ships have just been either canceled or, or docked or, or any of that stuff. But as you look into your taking the kids crystal ball, what's what's like on the horizon uh, for well, nobody's cruising? nobody's announced anything yet. I mean, we can hope some of them may be back by the holidays. It's hard to say. I think they'll definitely come back in 2021. And one one advantage with cruising right now is that you can book, uh, you know, if you are a cruiser and you love cruising and maybe you love one particular brand, you can um, make a reservation with a very, very low deposit. So um, that might be something to consider, you know, <clears throat> for for next year sometime or uh, um, the following year. Are there um, are there cruise lines, and I know you've been a big fan and proponent for, well, quite a number of different lines over the course of the years that you've been, you know, with us on the show and, of course, highlighting things. And when it comes to kids, Carnival's always been a great one. Are there some cruise lines that you see that have either been more insulated and able to kind of weather this storm or in a better position to, to um, stay ready? The only thing I've... I've seen um, are, are ones like companies where you can basically book your own boat for a very <laughs> few number of people on cruises, which are more like adventure cruises. They're cruising in Alaska um, it, right now. They very, very small boats, you know, less than a hundred people, but, you know, again, Alaska is a place that has a two-week quarantine if you're coming from uh, the lower 48. So I don't know exactly how that's working. I don't think anybody's been uh, insulated. I just saw that um, the Paul Gauguin had a uh, an outbreak in Tahiti. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think uh, cruises, until we have a vaccine, uh, can be a petri, you know, whatever they try to do. I, I just think, um, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's just fraught with, with issues, but you know, they were a very robust industry and there are millions of people that are, uh, devoted cruisers. I, so I think people will return. I think it may be harder to get new cruisers on, you know, aboard but um i think right now they're they're all more concerned with when there'll be a vaccine and when they can get back do you see um, it as an opportunity for those people that know cruising really do appreciate they may see it as okay great more for me like less people in the way that aren't necessarily devoted is Um, is there because they may when they come back they may well have to reduce um occupancy so that could be true, and uh, they'll probably be. I don't know so much if the prices will be really low, but I think what we're going to see are a lot of extra amenities. You know, like free Wi-Fi, free drinks, um, maybe free flights. You know that 
that kind of thing uh, to entice people to book. Oh, those are great. So, those are great enticements, yeah. though, because that's a lot of the, you know, where people feel, I don't say nickel dime, but people feel like, you know, that's where they get sort of, you know, that's where right. the cruise ship wins, right? You know, when you're paying totally. for every you drink. Can- you can think you got a really great deal, and then before you, you know, when you get your final bill, <laughs> right. it's like twice what you thought it was going to cost. So, um, yeah, so those kind of deals can be very appealing, I think. Well, all so of I, oh, oh, I would I would say, you know, if you have, but this is true with any uh, chain or company. If you have one that you like. Follow them on social media because that's where you're going to start to get, you know, hear about their latest deals. And with cruising, it's always a good idea to work with a travel agent who's a cruise expert, you know, and then they'll know what's good and what's not good in that world. When it comes to knowing what's good and what's not good, all we need to know, the only the only person we need to know is, of course, Eileen Ogins. <laughs> and, of course, the site is takingthekids.com. And whether there's a pandemic or whether it's just sunny skies and people out there enjoying the world, you are there to help share uh, that information. So before we let you go, let's talk about, I know you haven't stopped. I've seen on social media you're riding horses and, and fishing and floating <laughs> and doing all those things, you know, keeping everything going. And so... Fill us in on what's new at takingthekids.com before we let you go. Um, Well, we're uh, currently working on our fall editorial, which will be out in a few weeks. And then we're, I'm really excited about this. We're going on a raft trip on the Grand Canyon with Western River Expeditions. And um, I did this in my 20s before I knew my husband. He's never been to the Grand Canyon, and we only had this chance because so many people canceled this year. So um, that's next up for us. Well, I want to tell you right now, first off, and I don't have to be the one to tell you, it's a cautionary tale, but be safe for all those reasons that we're currently worried about on the pandemic side, but also, you know, those people, hopefully you won't be lured into trying to get a selfie too close to the edge. Oh, no, <laughs> I know better than that, at least. <laughs> uh, Eileen, so kids.com we'll have links up at WGNRadio.com uh, for all that and all those different areas. Can't thank you enough for taking time out, helping the listeners, kind of sharing some of the stories, some of, uh, and some of the opportunities that are out there so thanks eileen for jumping on the show tonight sure anytime thanks for having me dan Seven twenty. wgn it is dane here with you high atop chicago in the skyline studio uh, excited to have on. Uh, she is the director for Visit Portugal USA, calling us all the way from her hometown uh, right there in uh, in Portugal, uh, Viero. It is uh, the one and only Selena Tavera. Selena, welcome to WGN. Good morning, Dane. How are you? It is morning. It's still morning here. It's more morning where you are, and you are in, in a beautiful place. And I've got to let the listeners know that um, that Portugal is one of those places we had the opportunity to check it out early on when a lot of people were just, and this isn't ancient history, this was just the early part 
uh, earlier part of last year where so many Americans, because of TAP and because of just this effort to kind of share what Portugal is with the rest of the world, especially America, you know, got an opportunity to, to see it. Working in and around the food scene, we were familiar with, you know, port wine and some of the some of the other things that were kind of known about Portugal. But there was so much of it. Selena, you grew up there, so maybe this is news to you. That was mysterious. So excited to have everybody last year get the opportunity to check it out and understand it. And now it has become one of the hottest destinations. I'm sure your job has become busier and busier, but of course we're all on hold because of the the pandemic. Correct. Yes. Unfortunately, we we are also very hopeful that we can, uh, or that the travel restrictions uh, to Europe um, uh, and between Europe and the U.S. Uh, reopened so that we can all return to uh, to uh, some kind of, of normal a new normal right um, but we are we are we are so uh, so hopeful that that happens very soon and, and very eager to welcome Americans back to Portugal um, we can already welcome Canadians so that's a good uh, that's a good news uh, but uh, but yeah but we, unfortunately we, we are still with um, Europe still has its borders close to uh, to the US yeah. Um, so hopefully we'll have better news in September. Well, let's let's you know, and there's been a lot of that as people are sort of planning what it is they'd like to do when they can do it. And Portugal has been on their mind. There's been a lot of word of mouth where people have gone, checked it out. Certainly we've done that here. I have done that. And there are other people that I know as well. But for the listeners that may still see Portugal as kind of mysterious, if you could describe, you know, what it is or try to compare it to maybe places that people are more familiar with. What I love about it is that it is it is a warm and welcoming people. English is, is pretty much understood and spoken. A lot of the television stations have it. I mean, it's a lot more... I mean, it's a lot more, I don't say it's Americanized, but certainly open and welcoming to Americans than you would think. Yes, absolutely. Um, we've been, you know, since 2008, the, the, the government um, has made a huge investment in uh, ensuring that uh, younger people would learn uh, English or second language uh, since they were very young. Uh, so kids today learn English uh, since they're six. Um, so, you know, 60% of the population speaks English or a, a second language. Uh, so that, uh, that in, just makes it easier for people visiting us, of course. Uh, and as you were saying also, all TV and radio, everything is in English. We don't double anything in, in, uh, in Portugal. We just subtitle it. So it makes it easier, of course, for the people to have a, um, a connection with, with the language and to learn the, the foreign languages, of course, because we're in contact with, with, the, with, with the languages um, every day in our lives. Um, and yes, for sure, I think Portugal, not, it, it's, it, of course, always difficult to compare your country to, to other countries, but very roughly, we are a small country. Um, continental Portugal is the size of, uh, of Maine, so we are uh, a, a very small country compared, compared to the U.S. We do have a huge coastline, and we also have two islands, Madeira and Azores. Um, Madeira is off the coast, uh, coastline of Morocco, and Azores is roughly in the middle of the Atlantic between the, the U.S. and Portugal. Um, although we are small, we are very different. Um, every region is, is different in scenery and food and gastronomy and uh, culture. Um, and that's what makes us so 
uh, interesting to visit is that you won't find the same thing traveling from north to south on the islands. Uh, it will always be uh, a different side of Portugal that you'll be discovering. Um, even the major the major cities of Lisbon and Porto are very different, both historically and architecture in, in, in architecture. So that's that's part of what makes Portugal so interesting to to visit. But I would say that the best asset for sure, as you mentioned also, uh, is the people. That's that's the best asset we have in Portugal. Uh, the people are so friendly and so um, eager to welcome you and um, and uh, and show you around. So so that's that's for sure what um, what we do best. We're going to talk. We're going to take a break, and when we come back. We're going to talk a little bit about Lisbon as a city, an international city, and what people can experience there. You say one of the best things you have is the people. I'll echo that for sure. Great people, warm people, people that are excited to be able to share what it is they have. I say a close second, third, the orange juice in Algarve. Maybe that may be one of the great things. The pastel de nada, amazing <laughs> stuff. And so on the food side, there are so many things to experience as as well as those other regions. So when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Selena Tavares. Uh, it is Dane here on 720 WGN. <music> 720 WGN. It is Dane here with you in for Nick D until 4 a.m. Uh, and on the line with us, excited to have uh, she is the director for Visit Portugal USA, the one and only uh, Selena Tavares, and she's calling us from her hometown, which is Aveiro, right? Aveiro is the name of the town that you're in right now? Aveiro, yes, Aveiro, okay. So I'm, I'm not as yes. far as pronouncing all. I don't have my globe out or my pronunciation. It's okay. But, but people, so you have one of the best jobs that is out there because you are excited not only to share your hometown, but your home country in a time when there are so many people excited to learn about it. And um, before we went to the break, we talked a little bit about some of those cities in the different regions. And, and Portugal really does have every bit of that. You have so many, whether it's the islands or whether it's the you know Algarve in the south or the cities, you have a little bit of something. Mm-hmm. For everybody, for those people that have maybe traveled a little bit to Europe but have never been um, to Lisbon, describe what it is. It has, you know, a lot of sort of that kind of, you know, ancient history and the things that you'd look for in a European city. But it's modern. There's art. There's food, music. It's got all that stuff. Absolutely. Just as you said, you know, it's a, a, a great combination between the older uh, Portugal and the, and the heritage that we have to share um, but also with a very young um, and, and vibrant vibe. So there's a lot of, of course, urban artists um, that have um, art pieces, urban art pieces in, in Lisbon, but also in Porto and other areas of Portugal. Um, so it's, it's, it's a great mix between the old and, uh, and the new. So And there's a great nightlife also in, in both uh, Lisbon and Porto and other areas of, of Portugal, of course. But being, being the two biggest cities, um, they have the major offer. Uh, great nightlife, great dining, dining scene also. We have uh, new Portuguese uh, chefs that are um, revamping Portuguese uh, food, making it a bit more modern. Um, so you, you can taste a bit of everything in, in, um, throughout Portugal, you know, bit a, a more traditional side of, of Portuguese food, but but then also um, this this new wave uh, of uh, reinventing the way that we present Portuguese food. Um, amazing wines, of course, from north to south. We have uh, 
two major wine production areas in Portugal, Douro Valley, which is close to Porto, um, in the northern part of um, of the country, and also the Alentejo. But we do have other wine production areas. These are just the two biggest ones, and the people know the best. Um, so wonderful wines still to to have with uh, with our amazing food that can sometimes be a little bit suspicious as you as you were saying it can be a bit strange uh we eat a lot of uh, fresh fish a lot of seafood um uh, so you know it's uh, it's it's a perfect combination mainly now during summertime uh by the beach i mean can you imagine having some fresh grilled fresh food and, and seafood with some white wine it's i mean it's life that's what we all, all want I can imagine. I can imagine. You know, and when you look at what it is that you have to offer there, and I know it's a great destination for uh, for the Portuguese, but also for other people where the cat is out of the bag in Europe is the Algarve region. I got some time uh, to spend down there. Mm-hmm. And it really is sort of like a like a Riviera of sorts. And you have, you know, the beaches and you have sort of that kind of that seafaring kind of community and sensibilities. And, and then all of that, you know, kind of um, a commitment to whether it's like exploration or outdoor sports or, or hiking or, or biking. Correct. You've got all that kind of stuff at Algarve. Yes, yeah, so we do have the cities that we talked about, and um, but we also have, you know, the inland Portugal that has a lot of uh, nature and outdoors offer. Uh, the Algarve is an example where you can combine, you know, the beach area with the cycling trails um, and, and walking trails, and there's a lot of hiking also. You can also do some boat tours, uh, scuba diving, so... There's a lot of um, outdoors activities that you can do in Portugal also, and not, not to mention um, the Alentejo, which is between um, Algarve, uh, southern Portugal, and Lisbon, um, which also is a beautiful area, uh, very traditional with a very, uh, you know, whitewashed uh, houses with the blue and yellow borders, um, amazing food, but then also amazing walking trails, super beautiful with amazing sceneries, um, and, uh, and not to mention the Azores, of course, which is, you know, a sustainable destination in Portugal with green hiking trails everywhere, whale and dolphin watching, um, and Madeira also, which has a, an amazing walking trail that um, they were able to turn uh, the old waterways from the mountains to the city into walking trails um, that go through uh, centuries-old and, and UNESCO heritage sites uh, forests. So, um, a, a bit for everyone, for sure, you know, depending on, on your case and what you like to do when you travel. Uh, but mainly now the people might be looking into, uh, you know, more secluded areas that uh, don't have a lot of, uh, of tourists and that the people can also stay outside because we've all been locked up yes. for so long um, that, you know, some people are looking to, to go into nature and just being outside and enjoying the outdoors. Yeah, you know, getting a little bit of social distancing as you're kind of taking in Correct. Uh, that nature and yes. becoming kind of at one with the elements. And there's really no place on the planet that has been kind of exempt from the pandemic. We're hit really hard here. We've talked about some of the challenges. We'll talk in a little bit about uh, Canada. Of course, our signal reaches uh, Canada as well. So I'm sure there's some Canadians that are hearing this that are maybe learning about and making their plans um, to get to Portugal, but when you hear, I know mm-hmm. that you know Italy has had their their serious serious challenges. Spain got hit pretty hard, for, but Portugal didn't necessarily make the news. At least I don't remember hearing anything about it. So, uh, talk a little bit about Portugal when it comes to the pandemic and and dealing with it, and where you guys are with that today. Yes. So uh, 
we the peak of the pandemic in Portugal was on April 10th, if I'm not mistaken. So things have quieted down a lot since then. Um, we were never at full capacity on our IC units or hospital beds. Um, we always had an availability of about 60 to 65%. So that's great news. Um, it means that our government and our healthcare service was able to take in that uh, extra load of, um, of patients in a very organized manner. So that's the goal really in Portugal. Um, the, the goal at the moment is to be as transparent as we can with the numbers and, and what what the uh, situation is in Portugal. So uh, it's really to test, test, test. So we, we want to test as many um, new cases as possible um, and, of course, identify the, the great chains of uh, contagion. Uh, we are going to treat everyone, both locals and visitors alike, um, and, uh, and also to have a national healthcare uh, service response that is planned, right? So that's, that really was the goal since the beginning is to, to have a planned action uh, or, or uh, uh, yes, a planned um, action to, to combat um, the coronavirus so that our hospitals wouldn't uh, get to a break point, right? Um, so we are the seventh country in, um, in Europe that is testing the most uh, currently. We have done 1.5, uh, 1.6, sorry, million tests to date. So we have tested now more than 10 to 10% of the population uh, with a rate of only 3.2 positive test results, uh, percent test, uh, positive test results. So that's um, very low compared to, to other areas. Um, so that's really the, the goal is to test as many as possible, ensure that everyone is treated alike, both uh, nationals and visitors, um, and, uh, and, and ensure that we can uh, contain, you know, whenever there's an outbreak that we are aware of where it is and we can uh, take the necessary measures and apply the necessary measures to, to contain it. That's, that's, really, um, that's really the effort that the country is doing at the moment. Yeah, um, but I can tell you... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was just no, wanting was to just, say that that was, you know, I think that's important, obviously, on the medical side to be able to kind of mm-hmm. show that you've taken those steps to to deal with it and combat it and, and handle it and keep flatten the curve, as they say. But then you also have, uh, because I think part of it is it's one thing not to have cases here, but to make it clear that on the hospitality side, as you guys have tried to be as open and welcoming mm-hmm. to hotels and things, that you guys have a whole system, Portugal clean and safe where you can, you know, go ahead, where you can find out that some of the places where people will stay have also taken that care. Absolutely. So if you actually go into the website, www.portugalcleanandsafe.com, you can actually see if you're traveling to Portugal, if the um, if the services that you have contracted for your trip, either hotels or rental cars or golf courses, so anything that is the, that involves the tourism sector, uh, you can actually um, go in and type the name of, of the company that is providing the service, and you can actually see uh, if they are complying with the clean and safe stamp and, uh, of course, hygiene uh, measures, um, everything is explained on the website. Uh, we have now issued more than 20,000 uh, stamps uh, in the country, and we have also trained uh, more than 22,000 uh, tourism professionals. Uh, so it's been very well accepted by the tourism sector in Portugal, um, and, of course, we are then responsible for uh, ensuring that they are actually applying the, the, the new safety and, and hygiene uh, hygiene measures each one of the of the companies uh, so we do have um, we do have uh, inspections 
on uh, site inspections that we do regularly. Um, so that was one of the steps that we took for sure is to ensure that uh, also from the, the, the tourism board side of the Portuguese National Tourism Board um, that we would also contribute to reinstate uh, the trust, the trust, but also transparency um, that uh, the Portugal is known for, um, but also reinstate the trust in our travelers to to feel safe when when visiting Portugal. Well, it's important to know. It's important that you're taking those extra steps to make people feel not only comfortable, but safe in what it is that they're doing. And that's part of that partnership. Let the listeners know we're talking with Selena Tavares. She's the director of Visit Portugal USA. When we come back from this break, one of the great and I think very unique partnerships that you have is with TAP, with the, with the airline there. It's part, I think it's part of the, part of the country, right? And you guys have gone hand in hand, not only to provide and kind of share some of the excitement that's happening in Portugal and and some of the opportunities, the things that people can see, but also find ways to, to bring the people back. You're starting to bring back, and this is news somewhat breaking, you're starting to reinstate some of those, uh, some of that air travel from some U.S. cities. And also in Canada, we talked about that, where you can actually, you know, those residents are actually allowed to come and visit the country. So hopefully people will be able to get on those uh, in, the, in the coming weeks here from, from the United States and travel to Portugal. So when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about that, some of those routes, that connection with TAP, the partnership with the airline and and how we can get some of our Americans back over to Portugal as soon as we can. Quick break. Uh, it's Dane here on 720 WGN. <music> 720 WGN, it is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline studio and on the line with us, one of those great destinations. Once we can get back out and about and starting uh, to visit Europe once again, the number one destination, or at least one that people should check out, one of the hottest ones, of course, Portugal. And on the line with us, we've got Selena Tavares. She's the director for Visit Portugal USA. Selena, welcome back. Thank you so much, Dane. Yeah. Well, okay, so here's one of the things that I think people need to know is that um, Portugal was the first European destination to be recognized by the World Travel and Tourism Council receiving their special safe travels endorsement. So you guys have made, not only on the you know interior kind of uh, ways as far as trying to keep the pandemic um, as low as possible for the residents and, and citizens of Portugal, but also to provide that welcoming atmosphere as well for people who would want to come and, and travel and visit. And one of the things that you guys have that I think is a, a unique strength is the relationship with mm-hmm. TAP, right? Is the is the airline not only to provide you know the interest for people to go, but also like those avenues, right? And and that's something that was a very unique partnership that you guys had right from the get go. Absolutely, and 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 um, and specifically for the U.S. and the Canadian markets, um, TAP of Portugal was a huge piece in also opening up these markets for for us. So uh, you know, allowing people because. Direct flights make all the difference, right, uh, when traveling to a destination. So um, they were a great partner, partner uh, to us then and, and continue to be um, to this day. So we work very closely with uh, with Tabor Portugal with, in, you know, promoting the, the destination. Um, and, of course, also their, their flights and services out of the U.S. to Portugal. Uh, we are very fortunate to have uh, such a great partner. Were you surprised? You know, I was here for the ribbon cutting there. Were you surprised at how well it actually worked out? Because this was kind of an experiment, right? To see whether people with direct flights are one thing. You can have access to places. We have access mm-hmm. to lots of places and we don't go there. You know, were you surprised mm-hmm. at just, just how big of a hit Portugal was? 
I mean, I think we always kind of knew that, uh, you know, because if you look into other uh, destinations in Europe, like Italy, France, you know, Portugal, Spain, we, we have all of that also. We have the heritage, we have the gastronomy, we have the wines. Uh, it was just a really um, uh, a matter of um, Americans and Canadians not really knowing what Portugal was about. Um, so, so that's why this partnership worked so well, you know, between ourselves and and, and um, uh, promoting the destination and, and putting Portugal out there and, and having people learn more uh, about um, about Portugal and what they can do when visiting the, the country. Um, I think, you know, it, it, it was just uh, a matter of time until, uh, until Canadians and Americans discovered uh, what Portugal had to offer, really. Um, it had everything to, to work out. Yep, and he has everything, of course, from the cities to some of the most beautiful beaches by Condé Nast uh, in the world. Now, one of the things that we wanted to mention, too, is the, the Azores and uh, Madeira. So what is different about that? Whether it's the, the play, obviously it's an island setting, so you've got, you know, those elements that I think are pretty cool. But is there a different dynamic or different requirements in order to visit those places to enter? Yes. So to Portugal, to continental Portugal, um, there are there are there are of course restrictions from the US, but not from Canada. So Canadians can uh, go ahead and, and visit Portugal. Uh, there is no quarantine yet arrival, um, and uh, the use of masks is um, not mandatory uh, in public outdoors uh, areas, but it is uh, everything that is uh, inside or, you know, if you go into a store or a restaurant, you do have to wear a mask. Um, but to Azores and, uh, and Madeira, because there are um, island destinations, it is different, of course. Um, so to Azores and Madeira, you do have uh, to present a negative uh, COVID test results um, at uh, the en- at, at entry, so you do have to present the, the test uh, when arriving to these destinations. Uh, you you can also do the testing there um, when arriving to Azores, but uh, I would recommend if you can um, that you would have it done uh, within the 72 hours prior to. Um, and also to Madeira, uh, Madeira has not decided that uh, since August 1st, um, everyone needs to wear, uh, so the use of masks is mandatory for the exception of children, um, and uh, so you have to wear a mask uh, everywhere that you go, um, unlike Azores and uh, in Portugal. So um, the measure does just not apply to children up to 10 years old, people with special needs or disabilities, when practicing sports um, at beaches, bathing areas, um, for the exception of, of course, uh, sanitary facilities, um, physical activity, and recreational sporting um, activities in the course. For example, the walking trails that we were talking about. Um, For for these exceptions, um, you have to wear uh, the the mask in public with, uh, and it's it's compulsory. So um, it is a mandatory rule when visiting Madeira now. So tap on Portugal, reinstated service between U.S. and Portugal in June with flights between Newark and Lisbon. Last month, they added service back to Lisbon from Boston, Miami, Toronto, and to Porto from Newark. And this month, we're going to see Washington, D.C. to Lisbon. Also, TAP just launched Boston nonstop to the Azores a week or so ago, and Montreal to Lisbon is this last weekend. So they're already putting the pieces in place to be able to provide the transportation. So once we get to that point, do you have any idea? Is it, like How does that, that decision-making happen? Is it something that 
I don't know who makes that decision. Does the does each country decide in and of itself and independently? So Portugal, when they feel like you know America has got its level uh, to a place that's acceptable and they can welcome us back, is that something that there'll be an announcement, or is it some is it like the World Health Organization that decides that it's okay? Who decides when we can come back and visit you? Well, uh, yes, to a certain degree, each country is able to decide if they are going to reopen to the U.S. But of course, you know, as, as we are part of the European Union, uh, we have been following the recommendations from the European Council um, that is meeting every 15 days about this matter. And, and then the ministries of, uh, of each country, part of the EU, are also meeting to, to decide um, if they are going to reopen to the U.S. or not. So at this point, Portugal is following the recommendations from the European Council, um, and that's why we haven't reopened yet. Um, I believe we will um, reopen when the, the European Council also feels um, it's safe to, to reopen to the U.S. Um, so it's, it's not only Portugal, and it's France, Spain, everyone is, is kind of following uh, the European Council's um, advice on this matter. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, we hope that that happens sooner rather than later. And one of the good resort or rewards that we can have outside of just general health, which is, you know, of course, imminently uh, more important is that we can have the opportunity to visit and kind of hang out with you guys again and see one of those best and kind of undiscovered countries. Portugal as more people get out there and enjoy it. So as we let you go, Selena, is there like a website where people can, you know, I guess, continually check up with things that are happening, maybe some of the new things that are going on, or just kind of get in there and sort of plan that vacation for when it's possible? Absolutely. So our website is visitportugal.com. You'll find all the updates uh, about Portugal um, there, but also about the COVID-19 in Portugal and what the situation is and what the rules are. Um, Everything is uh, very well explained there. Hop into into our website and and you'll find all the details there. Um, Would you mind, I just uh, also wanted to add, Zane, that we have a new travel insurance. Um, We have created a travel insurance called Portugal Travel Insurance. You can uh, visit the website, which is portugaltravelinsurance.com. So this travel insurance actually covers health expenses, repatriation, cancellation, or disruption of travel originated by COVID-19. So, you know, it's just another uh, uh, measure taken by, by Portugal to ensure that our visitors feel safe um, and uh, and that we are doing everything in our power to ensure that people um, are covered uh, when uh, when traveling you know, to to Portugal during the pandemic. Um, so it's just another added value. Well, I wanted. To, well, let's let's talk about that for just one quick second because I know that in some of the interviews that we've mm-hmm. done, I know in Sicily as part of a way to kind of bring people back and kind of be open and welcoming, they've decided to cover some of the hotel costs or cover some of the travel costs. Of course, when people are allowed to come back there, and so this is important because there is a lot of indecision out there when it comes to traveling and and if you do get sick. So how does it work, Selena? Is it so you're insuring the travel? So let's say if someone gets sick and they can't travel, that they'll those costs are covered or you'll help them reschedule? How does it work? Uh, so it's really, um, it, it's exactly like a travel, a, a, a normal travel insurance that you would do if, you, if you'd if you like. But the, the exception for this one is that it does cover um, and it does assist with uh, COVID-19 related issues. Um, so the way that, uh, that it, it, it works is that it helps you 
uh, and it helps prevent unseen events related to uh, the COVID-19 with, with your travel, including refunds, flight cancellations or interruption. I mean, it will give you the options um, just just as a tra- another travel insurance. It will give you the option of either being refunded uh, or, or, can- or in, in case you have a cancellation uh, or you interrupt your travel. Um, the, the added value here really is, you know, all the measures that they have taken or, or all the benefits that you can have from this insurance if you do, con- if you do unfortunately, contract, um, contact, uh, get in contact with COVID-19 and have to be hospitalized or have to be repatriated. So, so that really was the goal, was to go the steps for- further and ensure that uh, people would feel safe in case, um, you know, the, the worst possible uh, happens, which is uh, people um, get in contact with COVID-19 uh, and um, and are infected and uh, need to be repatriated or need assistance in Portugal. So it does uh, have an... Um, yeah, Sorry, Dean, go ahead. No, that's an, no, it's an important thing because you know that is one of those I want to say worst nightmares, but one of those worst case scenarios is that you have to have mm-hmm. a, you know a medical care outside of the country. We've all heard some of those horror stories, and I think that's another one of the great kind of public private partnerships that uh, that you guys have thought of that Portugal has, whether it's the transportation side, the government support, and of course your support uh, on uh, the advocacy side, carrying that torch for Portugal. So, Selena, thanks so much. We're going to have links up at WGNRadio.com for all this so people can get more information, plan their vacation, or maybe change citizenship, go become Canadians uh, in a short amount of time, and then, <laughs> and then come back and visit you. Selena Tavares, thanks so much for what you're doing and for jumping on the show tonight. You too. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you again, and uh, have a great show. Seven twenty WGN high atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio. We can see uh, a pretty long way from here, up uh, on the eighteenth floor. We can't see all the way to Indianapolis. That's why we're going out to our correspondent out there. Of course, he is the the racing pride of Lincolnshire, Illinois, and the driver of the Rustoleum Rocket, NHRA's top fuel category. The one and only, the incomparable TJ Zizzo. TJ, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much, my man. Yep, right here from Indianapolis. Sweating something off this weekend, my man. I'm not sure what's going to fall off first, if you know what I'm trying to say. Not only providing us racing excitement on the track, but also weather reports, too. Mention the sweating. Of course, safety is one of the most important things in the world of racing. Do you think you're sweating enough to uh, forego the Nomex suit and just use personal perspiration as your fire protection? (laughs) Boy, that's a valid point, Dave. For sure, just (laughs) Sweating from my pits and extinguishing fires. I love it. <laughs> and, of course, with the Rustoleum rocket out there, I noticed this in some of the promo pictures, and I love the outfits that you – not the outfits, obviously the uniforms that you and the team wear. You've gone with, at least in the promo pics that I've seen online at the NHRA.com site, you've gone with white. Is that something that also kind of reflects maybe the sun rays? Is there any thought other than just design you know, and aesthetics? You know, we love to pop, right? And when we're out there and most of the teams wear red or black or blue or dark colors, we stand out so well at the starting line. TV, it looks great. When it's shown on Fox, you get to see the uniform. It's pronounced. That's why we did it with the car, too. It's uh, it's really nice, man. It looks clean and crisp. And trust me, Dane, when I tell you I did about 10 cycles apiece with heavy-duty detergents 
to make sure that they look white <laughs> this weekend as well. Because by the end of the weekend, they have clutch dust, they have rubber, they have fuel, whatever else could be thrown at you at the starting line. And they looked darker at the end of the weekend. But, boy, they're going to shine bright. Maybe, like, I don't know, Tide should sponsor us or something. <laughs> well, I mean, it's important, right? With everybody having high-def TVs, 4K, you want to look your best. You're going to have a lot on it at the end of the weekend. Hopefully some residue, maybe some gold paint from a Wally maybe would be nice to have kind of smeared up against it. Now, here's the thing is that for all of the fun and all of the personality that you bring to racing, you guys are actually, in these challenging times, bringing – some of your your some of your best racing. You guys have always been great, always been competitive, and always been one of those teams to watch out for. And and it's it's not stopping. This weekend is some of the same. You know, Dan, I'm fortunate, man. I've surrounded myself with the same team members in excess of 27 years. Um, we've been doing this together. Most of that team compiled for at least 10 or 15 years together. I don't know why my dad and I torture these guys. Like I said, we're out here right now in the hot sun, sweating. I've told these guys last week, and I'm going to tell them this weekend, I don't think all the money in the world can pull you guys out of the air-conditioned trailer, our semi, <laughs> to be able to work in the hot sun like this. And if you had a regular boss that was telling you, hey, go out there and put this up, you know, you would think that they're nuts, and you'd probably quit that job the same day. But this is how it works with our team. My dad and I are out here, too. So, you know, it all starts at the top, right? They see a 69-year-old guy like my dad out here sweating bullets and getting it done alongside the 24-year-old. And that's the reason. I think that's the reason we're successful because, you know, we all have our specialized jobs, right? But at the same time, we all work together for a common goal, and that's to do the best we can for our marketing partners and our sport. Yeah. Well, we, we say the, the incomparable TJ Zizzo, but the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Your dad's 69. Wow. I didn't even know that. He's in an incredible condition too. Not that you need to put him to work, especially you got to take care of him as part of the brain trust for that team. Let's talk about the sport in general. So many sports, every single sport on the sidelines because of all the challenges in the pandemic and racing has been no exception. And you guys getting back to it. Do you feel because you guys do run sort of a selective schedule. You'll pick races here and there that you think fit with the sponsors, fit with your schedules, and get in there. But now, you know, all of these other race teams, a lot of those events have been challenged or canceled or postponed and that kind of stuff. Does it level the playing field, or does it give you maybe an advantage as a guy who's used to this stuff? I believe it gave us an advantage, Dane. The reason it gave us an advantage is because we're used to sitting three or four months at a time before our next event. Not that we sit, trust me, we're always constantly working on the, on this thing. But, you know, we come out and people always, our competitors say, how in the world do you guys sit out three or four months and come out swinging the way you do and out qualify us? Well, yep. yeah, it does. It did help us out last weekend because these guys had to sit for 120 days and they had no idea where to begin. You know, we're used to it all. Uh, now this weekend, I think it'll be a little different because, you know, all these teams that are sponsored by huge corporations, and this is what they do for a living. Remember, Dan, we have a great marketing partner in Rustolium, and it's a Chicagoland company. But we don't do this full-time, man. We do this because we love it. And uh, I think those guys, uh, you know, in this pit area, will step up the performance a little bit. But quite honestly, we will too. 
Yeah, yeah, and and let's talk a little bit about that now. Rustolium, you mentioned maybe not the maybe not the biggest company, but certainly an iconic brand in its field and in its industry. And you know, in these times of of challenges, hit the you know the corporate sector as, as much as anywhere. And on the sponsor side, they have been behind you for a long time. It has been a great matchup, and I think it's been great for Rustolium too, as you kind of share what it is that you do and share that brand at a high level. You know, on television, on the track, and all that kind of stuff. Talk a little bit about Rustolium. Sure, everybody's heard of it, obviously. Most people have used it. Not everybody knows they're from, you know, right here in our home state. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You talked about the partnership with Rustoleum. I mean, they make all kinds of products, um, even cleaning products like front cutter, for example. You go to your local Walmart or Home Depot and it's on the shelf. We have a great relationship. Rustoleum has done extremely well in this environment because guess what? People like you and I that may have been quarantined at home, boy, what are we going to do today? Ah, let's stain the deck. You know, let's paint the house, whatever it might be. So they've actually had a wonderful year so far. Um, And when I called them to say, hey, we'd like to go racing this year. Is that cool with you guys? They're like, yep, go out, go for it, do the best you can as always. And we work for them daily in our body shop. So we have a a very nice body shop placed in Lincolnshire, Illinois, and we are constantly doing R&D for them, educating them, coming up with all kinds of ideas, and then they'll come up with ideas across us, and we test them out. It's just a wonderful, wonderful partnership. And in this day and age, Dane, like you talked about corporate America and being squeezed a little bit, you know, when my boss at Rustoleum gets pulled to the side in the hallway, right, and they say, hey, why are we sponsoring a race car? All my champion at Rustoleum has to say is, hey, this is the list of things that TJ and his team does outside of promoting us on the racetrack and on Fox. And as soon as she mentions the five, six, 10, 12 things that we're doing that day for them, it's easily said, no problem. Let's continue to support them. So that's wonderful. Oh, in times like this, and as great as the, the products at Rustoleum are, and we know that they are, you know, to add an, a level of, let's be honest, excitement, right? It's not always the most exciting stuff, but you guys, you guys add that. And so that's exciting too. Plus a lot of eyeballs too on Fox. We'll have links at WGNRadio.com where people can catch the action all weekend long as we let you go, TJ, because I know that you've got a lot of stuff to do to get the team ready for success on the track. What is sort of a, like a race weekend for the team. It's amazing, Dane. As I have a drip of sweat running into my <laughs> eyeball and now into my mouth, um, oh. it's like a traveling circus, right? I mean, we have this huge semi, 80 feet long, 80,000 pounds, filled with equipment. So we pile all this equipment out. We put up an awning. We put up shelters outside. And then we get our race car ready. And we are constantly working at the shop, too. So it's real easy to come here prepared as we are to do well on the racetrack, and uh, even when it's 105-degree heat index, I am so looking forward to putting on my snowsuit, (laughs) climbing in a race car for an extended period of time, losing some weight, and enjoying the day. As we get back to whatever normal is, and hopefully, of course, for race fans to see, you know, all those great drivers and cars on the tracks and some familiar faces like TJ Zizzo, that is all part of it. And great to have you in on all of that action. People are going to be joining on Fox. And, and thanks, TJ, for, for taking a little bit of time and jumping on the show today. Dan, it's always a pleasure, man. Have a wonderful day and enjoy it. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. 720 WGN. It is uh, Dane here with you. High atop Chicago Skyline Studio. 
and excited to have, honored to have uh, on the line with us. Uh, she was the secretary to, to Beatles manager Brian Epstein, uh, the original president of the Beatles fan club uh, before the band became famous to becoming the biggest band in the world and creating possibly the most memorable music of all time. It is the one and only Frida Kelly. Frida, welcome to WGN. Hello. Thank you. And good morning. Good morning. It is morning here. <laughs> it is morning there. Good day, sunshine. Tom Hush playing that. And so great to have that be sort of your kind of opening song here. And so we, we want to get into it, a life that has been magically defined by so much music and so much magic and started off in the most, I think, unassuming ways, right? Is So if you could kind of describe that when you when you answered the, the job or you got offered the job, the job description didn't say become uh, you know, part of a, a musical phenomenon. What was that job description and what were you expecting when you first took it? Well, there was no description because I didn't go for the job. Um, I was just a regular at the cavern uh, and a Beatle fan. And, uh, of course, naturally I got to know them because I was going that often in my dinner hour from work. I worked around the corner from the cavern club. And then I got to know Brian Epstein, but everybody in Liverpool knew Brian Epstein because he was the manager of the, the big record shop then. And then one night I was watching the Beatles play in a place near Penny Lane, and Brian Epstein was there. And uh, I just went up to the counter to get an orange juice because there was no alcohol <laughs> it, it sold in those days in the club's and uh, Brian came over to me and started talking, and then he said he was going to start his own firm, because he worked for his father at the time, and he was going to uh, sign the Beatles up. And I just said, oh, right. And he said, uh, so I'm going to start my own firm, and I'll be looking for a secretary. I've already got one. He was taking his secretary from NEMS Limited, and then he asked me, uh, would I like to come along? And I said, uh, oh, I'll have to think about it. <laughs> anyway, it, the deal was that I went along the following Wednesday, and he told me what I'd have to do. And there was only the three of us in the beginning, a girl called Beryl Adams, myself, and Brian Epstein. So I gave my job up, uh, gave them a week's notice, and then went to start with Brian Epstein. Now, I was just a secretary at the time, but I was helping a girl called Bobby Brown. Uh, she ran the Beatles fan club. and But then, you know, later on that year, which was 1962, Bobby decided that she wanted to pack the fan club in because she worked full-time for a travel agent and she'd found a boyfriend and she wanted to spend more time with him. So she didn't want to do the mail of a night. So she said to me, I'm going to pack it in. And I said, well, you can tell Brian Epstein. <laughs> so she told uh, Brian Epstein, and then he came in to me in the office that I was in and just said, uh, oh, Bobby's packing the fan club up. Uh, you can take it over. So wow. I thought, oh, my God, where, where do I start? <laughs> so I was doing his work in the day, and if I got a spare moment, I would do answer some letters. And then I was doing it of a night. But, you know, they'd um, only release Love Me Do then. So the mail wasn't too bad. Not until, you know, um, it then when Please Please Me came out in the January 1963, 
it then started building up. Oh, now Frida, and let the listeners know we're talking with Frida Kelly, of course. So, uh, just so identified with the Beatles, obviously having been there since before they became famous, and of course, you know, through the entire history of of the band, you were a fan before. You like you said, you watched them in the clubs, and you mentioned you know Penny Lane, you mentioned Liverpool, words and cities that have become uh, synonymous with the Beatles that probably we wouldn't even know about if it weren't for the band and for all those things that that you saw and so the, the question is did you did you know i mean you were a fan anyway just like lots of people are fans of lots of bands of course you couldn't have seen that kind of unprecedented success but did you know that there was something maybe super special about these guys oh well, not maybe definitely um when you i would defy anybody to go down the cavern steps see the beatles on stage and then come out and say, I'm not a Beatles fan. If they say that, they're fibbing. Because once you saw them, you were just taken in, and you definitely wanted more. And that was me. It's one, it's one of the things, too, is there just wasn't what we have today as far as, you know, whether it's television channels or whether it's social media or any way to kind of share that. So you felt kind of like you were sitting on maybe, you know, one of those best-kept secrets that happened. You mentioned the, you know, kind of working the fan club. They had fans. They were big in the area. And then, and I know I saw this in, in one of the, uh, one of the stories, one of the things online, and certainly part of the documentary is that you're like, okay, well, it just make it easier just to have your own address in there for the fan mail, right? And then after that, you know, at what point did it become, geez, you know, I don't know what I've got myself into. This is more than a full time job with the fan club. Oh well, you know. Um, I- I took over from the girl called Bobby, and then I gave my own home address. You, you know, 17 years of age, you don't really think what's <laughs> going to happen. Right. And, um, then, you know, the mail started coming in just little tiny bundles, and then those bundles built up, and then those bundles ended up as sacks, and uh, my father was having a blue fit because his personal mail was among the Beatles mail. So I would have to go through it every day to find his mail because in those days you used to get, you know, the story I tell is like you'd get your telephone bill and it would be blue around the envelope and then you would get, if you didn't pay it, you got another bill with red around the envelope which meant you had so much time to pay or you would get cut off. In other words, they would close your, your line down. And uh, my father was getting bills, you know, red. We are going to cut you off. And in the end, he looked at me and he went, do something about this. Oh, <laughs> so we ended up as a, uh, we, we got a P.O. box. And, um, but before that, even, we divided England in half. So there was another girl called Bettina Rose. She'd done the south of England. And I'd on the north, but naturally that just wasn't working. And then uh, Tony Barrow, he then gave out the London address from his press office. And we got a girl called Anne Collingham. But that was a made-up name. It was just if if staff left in London, you didn't have to change the stationery. But uh, people wanted to see this Anne Collingham (laughs) <laughs> so uh, on the odd occasion, this girl called Mary would pretend that she was Anne Collingham. But then 
finally uh, they decided no free to take over wow. so then i took over the the running the whole running of the fan club it, it, because of course it was the world then you know i had area secretaries for england you know each county in england and then we had fan club secretaries abroad but they all came under uh, the wing of me having to do it on the fly like that too and i'll contend that there wasn't a blueprint for this there wasn't a roadmap for it i don't know that there was no, a band that had no ever... i learned I, I learned as i went along yep 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 and and in one way it was good you know it wasn't like somebody sensible and old running it <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was me because i was a beatle fan yeah. so you know i i knew if i joined a fan club what i would want so um i tried to to give as much as you know the lesser said you know what they wanted i would try i would do my best well, you to were, honor that you were able to walk that walk because understood right you weren't just someone taking a position or doing a job or trying to satisfy whatever you were one of them at the same time let the listeners know we're talking with the one and only frida kelly we're going to take a break and we come back we're going to talk a little bit more about that journey as the as the fame of the beatles grew and she had to sort of manage the expectations of those fans and experience it all along the way keep it here at stain on 720 WGN. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say it's all right. 720 WGN. Dane here with you. Skyline Studio reaching 38 states in Canada. Here is the Beatles music and of course their uh, fame reached every corner of the world. Excited to have on Frida Kelly. You know her of course as the original president of the Beatles fan club frida welcome back hello you mentioned I'm still here <laughs> thank goodness you <laughs> mentioned that you knew right away that there was nothing like them it was something special we didn't necessarily know what that could turn into there wasn't a roadmap for success and uh, did the guys know and you of course were right there with them experiencing so much of that journey along with them they understood obviously that they were making music they were pleased with and that people seemed to respond to but there had never been a band like this that had had that kind of success did they know it they knew that they were popular in Liverpool and the surrounding areas, but nobody knew, you know, how famous they were going to be. I mean, to me, in those days, uh, fame was, you know, like a singer that was famous in England called Cliff Richards. Um, and that was about my limit. You know, I knew, you know, they're definitely going to be famous one day. They're going to be as big as Cliff Richards. You know, where Brian Epstein said they're going to be as big as Elvis. I mean... That was later on, but in 62 um, and in 61 as well, I was going to the cavern. Um, You just knew, they just stood out from everybody else. But it wasn't just their music, it was everything. It was the way they dressed, it was the way they acted on stage, it was the way they acted, you know, to the audience. Um, Plus they'd done, you know, later on, you know, some of their own stuff. But the four, you know, the... They just communicated with the audience, you know, um, probably better than the other groups. Did they ever say to you, you know, or did you ever hear them kind of talking about, certainly they wanted to be successful, they wanted people to hear their music. Did they aspire to anything? Did they say, like, because I don't even know that world tours existed or any of that stuff was even something commonplace. Did they say, like... No, it wasn't then. Um, 
I, I don't think even Cliff Richards had gone to America. I don't know. Um, but I never heard them, you know, uh, say anything like that, you know, because I was just going to the cavern and, you know, stand and I, in, at lunchtime, because there was only, say, about 30, 40 people at the most, um, and they would play for, they'd done two spots, sessions at, at lunchtime they would do something like quarter past 12 to one o'clock and then they would do quarter past one to two o'clock and um you know you know you all had your own speck for want of a better word in the cavern and mine was just leaning against the wall the first arch uh, from the stage, and I used to just lean against the wall and shout up to them, not just me, other girls as well. I used to just shout up and say, oh, can you play such and such, and or, you know, can you do such and such, or you would go in what was called the band room. The door was always open, um, and you could, it was, you know, you just walked in the band room, and they'd be sitting there, and you'd just say, oh, it's such and such's birthday today, can you play say Anna you know wow. everything was very relaxed and um you know you, you you could communicate with them you know face to face and everything they seemed to be and that was one of the things that wasn't built either is just that mechanism for trying to handle or or deal with with the fame and everybody was kind of down to earth and certainly they had expectations and aspirations. And if Cliff Richards was the pinnacle, like this is a wow, if you could do that, then you've really made it. At what point Frida did, did it was, was there a moment when, uh, when it was explained to them or told to them, Hey, you know what, we're going to go to America or, Hey, this is, you know, there's a market for this or your popularity has gotten to the point that we really need to get out there. Well, that, 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 that would be discussed with, uh, Brian Epstein, you know, so I wasn't in on that because you have to remember I was doing an office job in the day. They were coming in and out of the office and not just them. We had other artists on our books. Um, so, you know, I was like typing letters. I was doing wages. I was, you know, I was jack of all trades. I was going to the post office. I was running to the bank. <laughs> I was answering the phone. Um, I, um, if, you know, Brian Epstein would dictate that it provisionally it, there was a booking going to be made, you know, for Blackpool. I would put it in the diary in pencil. And then when the contract came back signed, you then went over that pencil uh, in ink. So which meant it was confirmed that they were doing that, that booking in Blackpool on such and such a date. So I wasn't involved in the big conversations like that because they would be, you know, in Brian Epstein's office talking. Or, and funny enough, Brian Epstein had no seats in his office. He only had the one seat at his desk. So they used to lean on, we'll say, the window ledge. Wow. And, and the window ledge, was, it was quite high up. And the, the one, um, we'll say, side of this office was all glass. It was all window. So people on the other side of the road, which was a cafe that people used to sit in for coffee and things, if you looked out of that cafe up and you could see the window, you could see them and you knew that they were in Brian Epstein's shop. <laughs> so Beatle fans around the city, you know, if they saw that, they would just go in the shop and wait for them to come down and talk to them. But, you know, even up to 1963, they were walking around Liverpool. They weren't like, um, 
you know, hysterical fans. There were fans, but they didn't scream and shout and bawl, you know. <laughs> There's none of the Beatle, Beatle madness, you know, in the city at that time. We're going to talk a little bit about that during our next break. Is when they came here, I know that when my mom had gotten a chance to see the Beatles at the International Amphitheater here in Chicago, and she said that everyone just screamed at the top of their lungs. They couldn't hear any of the music. They didn't know what no. was being played. They just did it for that period. I wanted to ask I you, think it was just the excitement of, of actually getting a ticket and seeing them on stage. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, sometimes when I do Q&As, I do say, you know, I wish the Beatles fans could have seen the real Beatles in the cavern. You know, because to me, that was the Beatles. Because, you know, when they went to America, you were just seeing them in suits and they were playing records, you know, numbers that you could buy on a record and you weren't even hearing it. And you didn't see the real Beatles. Well, I usually say, if you, if you want an idea of what they were like, watch the film Hard Day's Night, because to me, that gives a little bit of insight what they were like. And their personalities, too, and you got to see that firsthand yeah. from from the get-go. Now, here's the thing, because you were that direct connect to the fans, and you, as a fan, understood what it is other people were seeing, seeing in them. And so when it when it first happened, when you got word that they were going to go to America, you probably saw, just as you mentioned, there were people working the North and working the South, and you were working it, that this was going to mean a lot more work for Frida Kelly. Well, well, no, when, when they were going to America, um, we had a, more staff then, because this was 1964, and I just, there was two of us that were really, you know, big Beatles fans, the receptionist, uh, who eventually ended up receptionist for Apple, Laurie McCaffrey, and myself, we were the Beatles fans, and we were on edge, because we didn't know what way America would react. Really? And you didn't have mobile phones in those days or anything, so... We were thinking, oh, we hope you love them. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I know. And then Brian Epstein actually rang and told us, and I think Laurie and I were jumping around, around the office. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, that, it, is, that is, it is amazing to hear that story because that is just, you know, the excitement that you had was not only excitement for yourself to see the people that you had loved and supported and wanted to see them be successful, but also knowing just what it could mean for the rest of the world. And it meant every bit of it, too. When we come back from this break we're going to talk more with uh with frida kelly we've got an event that's coming up that we're going to highlight uh here in chicago fest for beatles fans august 7th through the 9th plus a little bit more about that journey as she traveled with them on their journey not only to stardom but uh but to immortality basically so keep it here at staying 720 wgn <laughs> WGN, it is uh, Dane here with you until 4 a.m. high atop Chicago Skyline Studio on the line with us now. Excited and honored to have uh, the original president of the Beatles fan club, the one and only Frida Kelly. Frida, welcome back. Thank you. So before before you go on, can I just say something? Yes, for sure. I've got um, six cousins in Chicago. (laughs) Really? And I just... Yeah, and I'd just like to say hello to them um, because, you know, I do like Chicago. I've been to Chicago to the festival before, but before I went to the fest, I had a week uh, in Chicago with my daughter and grandson. 
So um, I saw quite a bit of your city, which I loved, and also my cousins. So uh, I just like to say hello to them. They're probably asleep in bed, by the way. What you should have given them the big. You should have given them a heads up. They can get a shout out. Well, we'll have links to this up at wgnradio.com. They'll be excited to hear uh, hear that you were on this station. Of course, it's uh, you know the, the biggest station in the Chicago market, one of the biggest in the country. They'll be excited to have you here. So as you got a chance. <laughs> You know, just as as America got a chance to to know the Beatles, as you got a chance to know America too through through a lot of the stories and through a lot of the interest and everything. What are some of your favorite places? Chicago, for one, but are there other places yeah. around America that you love? Oh yes, I I, I love Ohio and I, I like Cleveland, and I tell you another place I loved um, Hot Springs. You know, uh, Arkansas. I, I went there. Yeah, I went there twice. And another place, um, I didn't think I'd like Vegas. Uh, I went to Vegas, <laughs> and uh, to me, that was uh, Disney World for adults. Yes, it is. Uh-huh. You know what they say for you, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Number one, first off, Cleveland, Ohio is probably going to add your, uh, I think, your testimonial that you that you support it and you like it. They're going to add that to the welcome sign as you drive into town. This is big for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I better mention everywhere I've been. I'm like, <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, I, I wanted to know. I can't, I can't upset people. No, no. Yes, you're a fan <laughs> of, of everybody equally. Now, when you got a chance to hear the music and you got a chance to hear the Beatles while they were still playing some covers before all of the, uh, you know, the originals yeah. were written, and their music really does span so many different styles. So this is the way that they were able to kind of change what it is that they were doing musically from time to time. Did you did you like all of it equally, or did you like certain parts or certain styles or certain albums more than others and say, geez, I wish they'd do more of that? Obviously, it's all been successful. Not really. I mean, that's one of the questions people ask me. They say to me, um, oh, what's your, bav- your favorite Beatles song? Um, I haven't got one because how can you pick just one out of all of that, you know? Um, naturally, I have... Not favourites, but when I hear a certain record, you know, it, it opens my memory box, you know, like something from Magical Mystery Tour, because I spent a week with them um, touring on Magical Mystery Tour. And then um, I love, you know, the first album, um, because I used to like John singing Anna, and uh, Do You Want to Know a Secret, and all of them, you know, that reminds me of The Cavern. Um, so... You know, and uh, you know, I love Sergeant Pepper, but then again, I love Revolver, and yeah. so no, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't have a favorite. I, I just like it all. You well, know, well, you, you know. Um, when when um, like say, ask me why first came out. Well, be- before it came out, um, Epi had naturally the demo disc, and he played it, and I I thought, hmm, you know, sounds terrible, doesn't it? But it, that that actually grow on me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, I had to hear it about three times uh, before I thought, yeah. And then naturally, and I think things that grow on you linger, don't they? They stay. <laughs> it's it is strange to think about this as musical styles change, and there are certainly some acts that have iconic hits or songs or or careers that have stayed with us and and remained in the mainstream. But one of the mm. things about the Beatles that is so 
that I think so very unique is that music is is just it as, doesn't date it does it, does, it doesn't no, date it's as relevant as mm-hmm. and as important as, as impressive you could play it for kids nowadays and they will love it just as much as kids did back in the 60s that's very yeah. unique yeah i think it's great you know like uh naturally you know i didn't do anything for a long long time and i was quite nervous when i first started um you know, I started with Mark Lapidus in New Jersey. That was my first festival. And naturally, you know, people didn't know me and I didn't know them. So I could like wander around. And it was just lovely to see the different age groups, you know, and all the young people as well. And uh, also it was it was nice to... You know, I, I, I thought I wouldn't enjoy it because I was quite a reserved person. But you know what? Once you start talking to Beatles fans, and um, they're just so nice. And I've made a lot of friends now and kept a lot of friends through, you know, my my doing the festivals. You know, I mean, you know, really good friends in Chicago. You know, um, they came to my 70th birthday party. <laughs> Um, so I had, you know, I invited a few people from all around America, and you know what? They all came. Yeah. Well, well, they have something so that was in, good. in common with you, just as you did. I think that's one of the things that made you that perfect fit for the fan club in the beginning. And to, to let the listeners know, what was, like, as someone who was a fan and, and knowing what it is they might want, what was the process for getting in the fan club? And what did people get? Did they get any kind of either trinkets or promotional items? Did that stuff even exist? Like, how did the fan club work? And, and what did you know they would appreciate? No, they didn't. Um, they joined, you know, it was only, oh, I don't even know what it would be in dollars or anything. When they first joined, because it was old English money then, it was five shillings. And they got a membership card and they got what was called, um, you know, newsletters. And uh, then, but they also got a Christmas present. Um, they got the fan club records. And uh, then when the fan club ended, um, they, they got what was called an, an Apple key ring. Um, but on top of that, they got all the Christmas records. They put them on an, uh, an LP, an album, and that was the final present to them. Now, I don't know any other fan club that's done anything like that. I mean, to run a fan club, it's very expensive. You know, the postage bill and everything, but the Beatles wanted a fan club, and um, they were very good you know, with the fan club as well. So, uh, and the fan club, well, it, it the, the official fan club that came under the Beatles' wing uh, was from 1961 to 1972. And uh, I stayed, you know, I'd done it officially from 1962 right through to 1972. When it comes to the to the so, fan club... For so him. when there was no... When there was no for want of a better word, Beatle Group. <laughs> right, you went through the entire actual active period of the band and even and even past that. And of course, the fans and interest in the band, you know, it never stopped. You know, it, what was 
what was one of those things? Did the did the band feel, and how did you guys feel as part of it? Certainly happy for all the excess, but when that hysteria happened, and when things came and became, I don't know, almost uncontrollably popular, right? Where they were in the news, in the headlines, and all that kind of stuff, in mm. a way that you sort of had to just fly by the seat of your pants. Like we've said before, there wasn't a roadmap for this. Did Was the hysteria, it was obviously great for the career and very lucrative, and it was a great business, but was were there some downsides to it? Were there some negatives where maybe it was a, you know, more stress on the band, the people, you, everybody? Well, yeah, you know, you, you know when you're famous, you know, like a all the pop stars now and uh, movie stars and everything, you know, if you're out in public, you know, you're not left alone, are you? Um, but, you know, there is times and there is places that you can go and, and some some of your fans are quite good. They don't pounce on you and everything. So they went through all that, you know, but they also had a life. And naturally, they had a private life as well. But I wouldn't discuss their private life, you know. I mean... I don't know if you know. <laughs> I can be, <laughs> I can be quite abrupt at times, and I was getting fed up with, um, pe- you know, fans writing in with personal questions, mm-hmm. and in the end, I put in one of the newsletters that uh, I wouldn't answer them, um, and also, I, you know, I didn't know some of the answers, and you know, I was running the Beatles fan club for like the fan side and the music side, not to tell everybody about their private life. And, you know, they are, they were, and I did put it in the newsletter, they were entitled to a private life. And please don't ask me about it. So don't, I got out of it that way. <laughs> yeah, but, but don't you think that's one of the other aspects, an intangible, maybe an unexpected, that made you also perfect for that role? Is that in, and you couldn't have seen it, no one could have predicted it, but the fact that you were so at least understanding of them and uh, and just so protective Right of that, you wanted to be able to share because you're a fan the music side of it, but understanding that they need that because I'm sure over the at the time for for sure, but also over the years leading up, you know, people would have loved. There would have been uh, it would have been you know lucrative. It would have been there would have been opportunities for you to do sort of a tell all book, but you never did. No, well, you've got you've got to appreciate and that people do need a private life. Everybody needs a private life. You don't want the world and his wife knowing all about you, or, well, I should imagine, you know, the majority of people are like that. They don't, you know, and um, they do want to know about your job, uh, and, you know, you're in that job to talk about it. And, uh, you know, they they spoke about the music, they spoke about other things, but they didn't really like being asked um, personal questions, and neither did I, you know. But that that's just... That's just people's character. It isn't just a, a rule or anything. Because when I f- first started uh, with Brian Epstein, there was no employment law, um, and he didn't sign contracts and, you know, uh, like a you contract to say what, yep. what your hours of work were and what days you worked, and there was none of that. It, it was just your word was your word, you know. It's it's the kind of thing that's that is absolutely amazing. We're going to talk a little bit more about the event coming up, the Fest for Beatles fans, August seventh to ninth. Uh, you're going to be a part of it, and we'll of course highlight some of that stuff. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other parts that happened with the Beatles, the the band, the great seats that you had for it, and maybe some of your thoughts on what the future ended up becoming for the band and the individual members uh, from your perspective. It is Frida Kelly. She is joining us here, and uh, so keep it here. It's Dane on seven twenty WGN. To get back homeward 
720 WGN. It is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago in the Skyline studio and joined by the incomparable Frida Kelly. Of course, you know her as the first president for the Beatles fan club. And a big shout out from from Frida and us here at WGN to her cousins here in the Chicagoland area who are excited to hear uh, her on the line with us. Frida, welcome back. And I, I wanted to ask, too, as a person who was there in the beginning and there after the end of the actual kind of activity of the band, were there times when you could see that things were either, whether whether it was either the band members, I don't want to say growing apart, I know that they remained close, but but where they maybe had other interests or solo projects or things like that, when, when, when they kind of called it quit, was it something that you saw coming uh, before it happened or before everyone else did? Well... You know, 10 years is a long time when you're 17 and then you're 27. And, you know, you're going through your teenage years and you go into adults and everybody life changes. You know, there was the group, but then as I put in the film, you know, they got girlfriends and then they got wives and then they had children. So naturally, in in one way, you are the same person. You know, you don't change yourself. But your family life and your other life does change. You know, um, you know they were seeing each other, but not as much. And also, you, deep down, you knew it couldn't go on forever. And, um, you know, my life was changing as well. And yeah. you, you want other things, don't you? You know, um, so you, you, you could see... You know, just everything was changing, even uh, things in London. I don't mean just in Apple. I mean, you know, the world itself was changing. So, um, but yes, to answer your question truthfully, yeah, I could see things changing did, quite drastically did you did you see though or did you have obviously as a, as a longtime confidant and fan of the things that they've done and know what kind of potential they had to create even more music when they got a little bit of distance and perspective and maybe to come back together again obviously that just well know. they were already doing that even when before they split they were doing their own thing in one way you know um and uh, so but you have to remember as well, I wasn't really heavily seeing a lot of them because I stayed in Liverpool. Yeah. So I would only go to London, you know, every six weeks or uh, when I had my son, you know, I went, I would bring him down, you know, even as a baby rather than leave him in Liverpool. So I would just go down for the day then, you know, but I, you know, I was going down to, to we say, to work, you know, go into Apple and discuss things with Peter Brown and Neil Aspinall and try and get, you know, and say what was happening with the fan club. And, you know, I saw Tony Barrow quite a bit, the press office, so I would get news. And I really was just there, we'll say. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I did, I stayed with Ringo Ringo, you know, at a flat in London, and um, then they had a house in Hampstead, so... I stayed with him and Mo because I was very friendly with both of them. But I also, you know, before I was married, um, I knew a lot of Liverpool girls that lived in London. So I would, you know, before I was married, I would go down on the Friday, you know, do my work in the office, stay with my, you know, different friends. One of the girls I stayed with quite a bit was a girl called Pat Davis. She, funny enough, now lives in L.A., has lived in L.A. for for years. And... Uh, we would go clubbing it, 
you know, to the various clubs around London. So I did have a good time in the beginning, and I would see them then. You know, I also went, you know, to the Adlib and the Scottish St. James with them. And um, then when I was married, you know, as I said, you know, I went down to London for the day. But I also went down for, you know, the Christmas parties. You know, the office, Apple had Christmas parties. So I would go, I would go down for them. Um, but I didn't see as much of them as I did in the early days. Yeah. You know, because they were, naturally, they were in and out of the office quite a lot because... You know, <laughs> uh, people in groups um, stay in bed in the morning. They don't get up till probably about lunchtime because they've been playing and come in late. Right. And then, you know, they probably get under their mother's feet or they get fed up at home. So they would come into town and then come into the office and mess about. In the, I don't mean mess about, but, you know, they would go through fan mail. They would come and see Brian Epstein and they'd wander around town. I don't mean just them. I mean, you know, Jerry and the pacemakers, they used to come in the office quite regular. Scylla, the foremost, Billy Jay, you know, because uh, Billy lives over there now. And I, I link up with Billy when I I, I uh, go to America. Um, you know, I, I have, you know, after all this, I, I, you know, I have been to America for, like, we say a holiday or... To, to stay with friends, I've stayed with May Pang quite a bit, and I used to go over for her parties, you know, in October. I didn't go last October because I wasn't very well, and of course now nobody can go anywhere, can they? Yeah. That's why we're having the fest this weekend. It's the, you want to talk about the fest, do yeah, you? Yeah, the, the fest, yeah. The, the com. The, is the amount of people that Mark has got on, you know, on Zoom is absolutely brilliant. It, you know, it's going to be great for everybody to link in all over the weekend. It would have been the 44th year. Uh, in Chicago, forty-four dollars each for the whole weekend. Mm. You were doing all that technology stuff, the the Zoom, and getting everybody involved and having the opportunity to kind of get in on this August seventh through the ninth. And the show times will be on Chicago time, of course. The Fest for Beatles fans. It's the Fest dot com and people are going to have an opportunity to talk with you to ask you questions we wanted to ask you know as as people because you've had that proximity and the experiences that almost nobody else has had and so do people come and ask you hey what do you think if the beatles if if let's say if john and george would have would be with us today like if they would be making music or touring if they would have got together do people ask you those questions they ask me those questions but i can't answer them you know um I I I I I don't know, you know. I can just assume things, um, but uh, I I only, my own opinion, and I'll always give my own opinion, and it's just my opinion. It's not other people's opinion. Um, I never thought that they would ever get back together again as a group. It just wouldn't. Once they broke up, they broke up, and that was it. And, maybe, and they were too involved with their own things then, anyway. And successful. Now, I think the chemistry that is necessary to make a band is is something sort of magical, right? But if you look at it, each one of them was so very talented in their own right. I mean, they were all yeah. successful solo as well. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, I, what I liked about them, you see, I'm not a... You know, I hope people don't take this the wrong way. I'm not an individual fan. I'm a Beatle fan. You know, I I like some things that they've done and some things I'm not keen on. But the Beatle music, I'm a, I'm a Beatle fan and I'll always be a Beatle fan. So I play 
not all the time, you know, because I, I like other music as well. Um, but I'll always play Beatle records. I have it on in my car or I'll play, in, you know, a Beatle number every now and again, you know. Um, and it, it is, I mean, so, you, you have, like you said, that, that unique experience and kind of that pedigree along with it as well. We want to say the fest.com is the website. The perk of each person having their own ticket is each ticket gives you an entry to win a rare book signed by Paul McCartney, Linda's Polaroid Diaries. I guess that's worth $2,000. So that would be a great thing to win. And having your own ticket will give you your own Zoom face box and control of whether you wander in the virtual hallway abyss. So there's going to be a lot of fun elements that are built into it. And, and Frida, as we let you go, for those people that want to either get more information, continue the conversation, catch up with your adventures, um, where can they go? Well, they're actually, um, on the Saturday night, Mark is showing, uh, I'm, I've done a documentary called Good Old Frida. So not good old Right. Old, it's O L apostrophe. So I think Mark is going to show that on the Saturday, so that will give people a bit of insight of what I've done. And then um, I'm being interviewed on the Sunday at w- one o'clock your time, and by Terry. And then uh, I'm doing a little bit of Q and A. I think I'm on for about thirty minutes. And I think Billy J. Kramer is on after me. It's a great opportunity. So it would be really good for everybody. You know, I mean, there's so many people on, uh, all connected one way or the other with the Beatles. It's it's a great opportunity. I don't know how Mark does it all. Well, I mean, he's got a brilliant wife and two daughters, so they they do their share. (laughs) I've done a test run with them to make sure it works on Sunday. I've done it last Sunday, and it was nice to link up with them again. It's a great opportunity for people to have that opportunity to talk with you, to hear those great stories. I know that you don't get um, tired of telling them because you are, as always, a big fan of of that. And it's just a luxury for people to have you kind of share that and be as enthusiastic about all of it as you ever were because there are so many people that have not lost that enthusiasm for the Beatles and so many new fans you know, coming along every day. And so, Frida, I can't thank you enough for, for participating in this, thefest.com, to get information, get in on all of it. And thanks for jumping on the show tonight. Thank you. And thank you for a good interview, by the way. (laughs) I appreciate it. And thanks for being a part of it. We're excited and uh, we can't wait to see you in person uh, next year. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Thanks, Frida. Enjoy Liverpool. All right. So that's so Frida. That's Frida Kelly. Of course, you know her as the original president for the Beatles fan club and uh, an opportunity to go ahead and it's one thing to be able to be involved in things that are, you know, that are already established, even if they're in the early part of the establishment, but to be a part of something that not only um, is something that changed, I think, everybody's kind of uh, perception of music, but also just that whole stardom thing. Like there was never anything like that. Concerts even of themselves were not really a thing. I mean, when they showed up and Tom, I mentioned it with Frida. So when my mom saw the Beatles at the international amphitheater here in Chicago, they showed up in that relatively large space with just like practice amps, like you'd have in your garage band, you know, not the big rigs and any of that stuff. Yeah, my dad actually saw them in because uh, he's Scottish. Uh, saw them when he was just a boy, about 1962, um, maybe 60. Wow! So my dad dad was born in 1952, so he would have been about 11, 12, maybe 11, 12 years old. And he saw them when they toured Scotland. 
So that's a but that's a great story. That's the kind of thing he probably brought up. All I don't want to say all the time, but probably because who Everyone's who has who has those stories, right? That's one of those things that you know America and people got an opportunity to go ahead and uh, and uh, and meet the Beatles much later. Those stories. Very few people have. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back and wrap it up at Staying Here 720 WGN.